Good evening, folks, and a hearty welcome to our drive-in theater. We just want you to enjoy yourselves. A gay, pleasant evening for all. Oh, a word of caution. Mom or Pop, go with the kids when they leave the car. We hope you have a wonderful time. Welcome. 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 Welcome to the Dead Zone. Welcome back, all you late-night weirdos. That's Danny over there. I'm Whitney, and this is the Dead Zone Screening Room. Hello. Hello. I missed it here. Did you miss it here? I missed it here. It's been a couple weeks. Yeah, it's been a while. Uh, We did kind of cheat on ourselves and go to another drive-in in the meantime, though. We did. It It was fun, though. I have not been to someone else's drive-in since I was a kid. And it was it was fun. Yeah, I hadn't been in, in, in years, like you said. And yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was it's so funny because neither of us well, I think I can speak for myself, I, I don't know, but the last time I had gone was literally since I was like a kid. And it's a vastly different experience as an adult mm. than versus a kid. And uh maneuvering around in the car is not so fun. Yeah, you and... have all these ideas that you're gonna get in and make this really comfortable palette and yeah. everything got all your stuff and you're gonna lay out, it's gonna be so comfortable. And yeah, I'm old. It is not comfortable just to flat out lay in the back of the damn car. Yeah. But still it, it was it was a lot of fun and uh it was a really nice weather too. Uh, they had a double feature of Harry Potter and it, the first one. And so uh, to keep in theme, they had a roaming Pennywise kind of roaming the lot. And that was that was fun. It, was, it wasn't in too, too creepy at all. It wasn't like jumping out and scaring anybody or anything. But it was fun to see like the little kids that were there for Harry Potter <laughs> react to Pennywise <laughs> that was kind of roaming the lot. So that was fun. Random horror can be amazing. <laughs> it always <laughs> is amazing. Well, speaking of drive-ins and the movies we play, oh, today uh, today is an iconic horror movie. It is. It, it's. I'm. I'm really excited because this is our first October as a horror movie podcast, and that's that's pretty exciting in itself. Just because we get to really, I feel like October, whenever it's spooky season, and you have you know like you're a spooky content creator, whatever that is for you, I feel like you really get to like thrive you really get to get in there and and have fun with it not that we don't always have fun but there's just this heightened sense of spookiness and so I've been really excited to jump into this month's theme and really excited to finally get into this movie because it's this has been kind of on my list of like movies that I've been wanting to watch with you for a while although it's it's fairly new to me I think it's been within the last couple of years that I saw it uh but I'm I'm excited to dig into it with you. Well, this one definitely has probably one of the most shocking twist endings in horror history. It it, it really is a murder mystery. Yeah, it's it's definitely one of those I feel like that keeps you on your toes just because it's so wacky all the way through and then you get to the ending and I remember the first time I watched this, I was actually, I did myself a disservice and I watched it on my iPad. So the ending, I was literally like face to face with my iPad when the ending hit and it's, it's this face that's just so jarring because it just stops on the credits and it's, it's just, it just keeps, it just keeps facing. And I'm like, okay, I'm still unsettled for far too long. And I think that's what I love about it. It's just such an unexpected ending. And then, you know, years and years later, we have these deep resonances within the movie that keep just talking about, 
you know, deeper meanings within all kinds of communities. And I think that's, again, just one of the coolest things about horror because you can dig into them and find so many cool themes and discussions to be had. Absolutely. You know, I, I think this movie absolutely started out being, uh, meant to be taken simply at face value. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but over the years, it's definitely morphed into something else. And, you know, if you want to watch it just at face value, it is damn fun. Yes. Uh, but if you want to sit there and analyze it and really get into it and uh, make it something deeper, there's plenty of that going around, too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The, the, this movie's just fun for everybody. <laughs> it's got a little something for everyone. Well, obviously, we're very excited to talk about it. But first, just to recap, a few months ago, Danny and I inherited a traveling drive-in theater, and we're told to watch horror movies of our choosing to figure out what we wanted to add to the theater's vault and what to leave behind in the dead zone. The only other rule is to never be late opening the drive-in for those who are able to find us. Uh, Yeah, the theater moves around, it's never in the same place twice, and it's a mystery as to where it'll show up next. But if you can use your knowledge of horror and follow the clues in each episode, you might be able to figure out where the drive-in will show up next. And this month, in honor of Halloween, the most wonderful time of the year, we are starting a new series we like to call Slash Away Camp, where we look at some of the most iconic 80s summer slashers that served us all the campfire fun, complete with a healthy side of teen hormones and plenty of murdery mayhem. And this week we are kicking things off with the classic Sleepaway Camp. I am so excited. Uh, this movie, you know, believe it or not, I never saw this movie when it first came out. Uh, I was pretty oblivious to it somehow, mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. completely went under my radar. I think actually you were the one who saw it and end up watching it and then told me about it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I was fully aware of this movie, but mm-hmm. had never actually seen it all the way through myself until we're doing it here. And I've now seen it twice. I always have to watch them twice, once just to kind of watch it and enjoy it for myself, and then the second time to do all my notes. Mm-hmm. I, I got to tell you, it's it's iconic for a reason. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I I think this movie, like you said, I I saw it and I was immediately (laughs) enamored with the craziness it is. And I had to tell you about it immediately. And I think it was one of those that I was like, if you ever want to watch it, we can watch it. You know, I'd be down to watch it. And it but it it just kind of like fell off our radar. So I'm, I'm excited to have it back into the world of the podcast. And now we get to talk about it deeper. Uh, and I hope everybody's excited about the the October theme that we're going with. I think it's a little bit different. And I know that I've had uh, listeners actually request Halloween, you know, uh, related content, which definitely makes sense. That will obviously, we plan on doing this for a long time. <laughs> so that's obviously going to come at some point. But I think I just didn't want to do Halloween for our first October in uh, and this I think Sleepaway Camp has been on my list since we started the podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's just been one of those that I've been trying to eke in where I th- I think like there's been a couple of months where I'm like, could this fit? Could this fit the theme? <laughs> so I think maybe this is just secretly my way of making this movie work for us to talk about. <laughs> yeah, instead of trying to fit a square peg into a round hole, we're just going to give it its own category. And we're doing this whole Slash Away Camp. So we are doing a whole month 
of these slashers that are centralized around going camping or going to summer camp, Mm -hmm. which I think is kind of what people think of when they immediately think of horror. For some reason, one of the biggest genres that always pops to mind are these, you know, camp slashers. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think also the kind of camp slasher genre or I guess subgenre of horror is also a great introduction to horror. You know, I feel like you said, I think a lot of people think of it automatically when horror comes up and I think that's just synonymous with the fact that it's it's not ever too much you know like a lot of them are so campy and fun and the effects are sometimes you know lackluster some of them are crazy and just shouldn't be there but are amazing and you know everything along those lines and so I definitely think the campy slasher is one of those that I don't know is the most friendly (laughs) of the horror genre I guess when it comes to what people think of when it comes to like beginner horror if that makes sense yeah uh, particularly this movie when it comes to like the kills and the gore is super tame Mm -hmm. yeah we get a lot of kills and they're gonna sound really gory when I describe them but keep in mind that the majority of what I'm talking about is happening off screen Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so you're just what we see as the viewer is just kind of like the victim reacting or maybe you see you know some blood trickle down or something but it's not as bad as anything we encounter in today's horror yeah yeah so if you guys want to uh, check out this movie before we get into it of course here's when i'm going to give you your spoiler warning uh it's it's pretty much streaming everywhere right now it's super conveniently it's on uh Tubi. I know we saw it on Pluto, Peacock. Uh, if you have Shutter, it's also on there. Uh, so there's lots of ways to watch this this gem of a movie. Uh, but if if you don't want to watch it, that's totally fine too. Of course, as always, we're gonna break it down here. So there you go. Whatever you choose to do, spoilers are gonna happen, my Spo- dude. Spoilers are gonna happen, and this this one's got a big one. Like I said, probably the most shocking twist ending in horror, uh, and it was absolutely intended to be that way Mm -hmm. and of course we're going to want to talk about all of that but it really is a fun movie and if you don't want that ending spoiled if you want to see it first I highly recommend going and checking this one out Uh, but like Danny said if it's too much for you we're always happy to break it down I feel like also this is one of those movies. Well, I feel like actually this whole month, I think that's why I'm excited about all the movies that we're doing this month. They're perfect for like a Halloween night watch, you know, so if you're going to have like a watch party with your partner or have friends over, you know, and be safe. I think these are the perfect kind of movies to watch and enjoy with like popcorn and drinks and everything at home. They're just I feel like these are some of the quintessential like Halloween movies. Yeah, especially this first one, you know, if if you really want to get in to the horror genre, I mean, you'd be remiss to not see Sleepaway Camp. Yeah, absolutely. And I also think this one's fun because it is kind of a, a underrated movie or unknown movie. A lot of people haven't seen this, so I think this is a fun one to kind of bring also to maybe those of your friends that are into horror. A lot of times people haven't seen this movie, so this is a fun one you can introduce to the fam you know the whole fam (laughs) it is just the most family-friendly picture ever (laughs) (laughs) nothing weird happening here at all bring bring the kiddos bring bring the dogs bring grandma everyone's gonna have a good time murder and creepy sexual predators (laughs) in the camp cook 
<laughs> All right. Well, before we get to the wiki on this one, I, I, I need to say this up front because very quickly I'm going to start introducing other characters and talk about their creepy credits and that kind of ties into this. So I, I, we need to do this up top and that is we need to crown a new undisputed champion of creepy credits. Oh, okay. I mean, Julian Richings, uh, he had a good run. He was at uh, 28 and we thought, I mean, 28 horror films yeah. on, on your resume. That's impressive. Uh, Felissa Rose has absolutely obliterated that. Oh, wow. Okay. So for those of you who don't know, Felissa Rose is the actress who plays the lead role of Angela in Sleepaway Camp. So uh, in doing my research, I always go and look at the IMDb profile of, of all the actors and actresses, and I check out what their other horror titles are. And when you sort Felissa Rose's filmography by horror, she has 166 horror titles. So she's been like a little bit busy. <laughs> Just a bit. <laughs> just a bit. So I thought, well, there's no way in hell I'm doing the whole episode would be just us listing yeah. her horror titles. So I I then from there will whittle it down to, well, let's just talk about feature films. Because when it says 166, although extremely impressive, a lot of that could be like if they get on a TV show that's considered horror and do multiple episodes, you know, like 20 of those could be one TV show that yeah. they did. They just appeared in several episodes. So then I say, well, just show me the feature films. Maybe that'll help. Nope, still 103 <laughs> feature films. <laughs> but then I noticed that, uh, you know, it had listed them by uh, their release date. So mm -hmm. the ones at, at the top... Uh, were either listed as simply announced or in pre-production. So we all know that in the world in Hollywood, they can announce movies left and right. That doesn't always mean, mean they're going to get made. Yeah. Even if they go into pre-production, money can fall through, different things can happen, and they just simply never get made. So anything <laughs> that was listed as announced or pre-production, I thought, okay, we're going to get rid of all of those. That should help. Nope, still 71 <laughs> titles that have been either all the way filmed, released, or are at least in post-production. Yeah. That is impressive. That's a lot. I mean, hardest working woman in horror. <laughs> that is just wild. And I've heard she's also like super sweet. She just, goes to a lot of cons and stuff. Yes, the nicest person. Yeah. Uh, so, of course, I'm still not going to sit here and list all 71 of her creepy credits. I I am going to list a few of some of the ones that I think have the best names. Okay. But another thing that you're going to notice is a lot of these people, when when they filmed this movie, they talked about how the whole atmosphere itself was like being at a sleepaway camp. I mean, they filmed it at an actual camp location and they were all a bunch of young kids. They, you know, they stayed out there. So it was kind of like they were at camp. They took mm -hmm. meals together. So they became very good friends and very close. And so you will see that they follow each other around to these others films. So yes, I'm going to tell you Felissa's some of her movie titles, but also, <laughs> there are going to be movie titles that other people have been in that are in this movie when I get to them. Am I making sense what I'm saying? <laughs> 
that those will also be. I'll let you know. Anytime, that's a thing now. Anytime we come to a movie that stars Felissa Rose, I'll just be sure and let you know. We'll have an alert. Yes. And eventually, throughout the course of this podcast, we will have mentioned, hopefully, all of her creepy credits. <laughs> that is Felissa our goal. alert. <laughs> all right. So here are the ones that I have chosen from her resume that I just, the names are too good not to have mentioned. Also, you're going to notice she was in a lot of other movies that deal with camp or uh, having like sleepovers and stuff. So she was in Psycho Sleepover, Caesar and Otto's Summer Camp Massacre. Nice. Silent Night, Zombie Night. Nice. Dahmer versus Gacy. Oh, come spicy. on now. Yeah. Fork You. That's nice. about a killer named Forkface. <laughs> I must see that immediately. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Camp Dread. My Uncle John is a Zombie. Oh. Swamp Freak. Victor Crowley, that's our boy Kane Hodder mm-hmm. and uh, the Hatchet franchise. Ugly Sweater Party. Nice. Hanukkah. Nice. Kill Giggles. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Camp Twilight. All right. Big Freaking Rat. That sounds pretty nice. <laughs> Camp Terror. Nice. And Terrifier 2. Oh, nice. Yeah. She's be in that one. She cool. will be in the sequel. That's really fun. So there you go. That's just a few... Of, oh, I can't believe it. Good for her. Yeah, no kidding. She's not here doing the damn thing. Doing the damn thing and doing it well, too. Yeah, I like I said, I know that I've seen videos of her at, like, cons and stuff. We follow her on Instagram, and I think we've even watched videos of people that have, you know, have met her at cons previously, and everybody says that she's just one of those people that's just one of, like, lightens the room you know Mm -hmm. what I mean like she has a really bright personality and is super fun and I think that's really amazing that she just continues to like hang out in this horror genre and really soak it up and not only do these movies but that she gets out there and like hangs out with the people that kind of help to get her where she is you know the fans and everything I think that's so fun well I can't think of a better way to honor her than to talk about this incredible movie that she was in So let's get to the wiki, shall we? Let's do it. All right. So Sleepaway Camp, uh, also released as Nightmare Vacation in the UK, is a 1983 American slasher film written and directed by Robert Hiltzik, who also served as executive producer. It stars Felissa Rose, Jonathan Tierston, Mike Kellen, and Christopher Collette. The filming of Sleepaway Camp took place in Argyle, New York, near Summit Lake, at a camp formerly known as Camp Algonquin, the actual camp that writer-director Robert Hiltzik has said he attended as a child. So how cool is that? This camp where this was filmed was the actual camp that the director went to Mm -hmm. when he was a kid. That is really cool. Well, the production was almost immediately behind schedule from the moment filming started. Unlike many of its contemporaries, which had adults portraying youth, the cast of Sleepaway Camp was primarily made up of adolescent actors. This meant limitations on the amount of time each actor could work in a day due to child labor laws. Also, the camp only allowed the production to film there in the off-season, which meant filming had to be squeezed into a short five-week period starting in September 1982 and ending in October the same year in order to capture the outdoor shots before the foliage began to change for fall, since this is supposed to be a summer camp. 
The shortened schedule didn't help completely, though, and in several shots, particularly the opening shots of the camp, the leaves have obviously changed, and for some closer-up shots, they actually had to spray paint the surrounding foliage green so it wouldn't be so noticeable. Released on November 18, 1983, Sleepaway Camp was a huge hit at the box office and would end up bringing in $11 million worldwide against its paltry $350,000 budget. That is ridiculously cheap for a movie. Yeah, no kidding. Well, the film opened to mixed reviews and was consistently compared to Friday the 13th due to their shared setting and whodunit plot structure. Since its release, Sleepaway Camp has gained a cult following from fans of the slasher genre and garnered critical reappraisal. On the review aggregator website Rotten Tomatoes, the film currently holds a 78% approval rating with an average rating of 6.4 out of 10. The consensus reads, quote, Sleepaway Camp is a standard teen slasher elevated by occasional moments of John Waters-esque weirdness and a twisted ending, end quote. The website Bloody Disgusting gave the film a positive review, praising Felissa Rose's performance and the film's twist ending, calling it, quote, one of the most shocking scenes since possibly Hitchcock's Psycho, end quote. An all-movie wrote in its review on the film, quote, While most of the gender-bending story's sexual confusion is ultimately half-baked, Sleepaway Camp is distinctive enough to warrant required viewing for genre enthusiasts, end quote. In the late 1980s, Robert Hiltzik, the director of the original 1983 film, sold the rights to the successive Sleepaway Camp films, after which Michael A. Simpson directed two sequels, Sleepaway Camp 2, Unhappy Campers, in 1988, and Sleepaway Camp 3, Teenage Wasteland, in 1989. Another sequel, Sleepaway Camp 4, The Survivor, directed by Jim Markovic, was partially filmed in the early 90s, but left incomplete. In 2002, the unfinished footage was released and made available as an exclusive fourth disc in Anchor Bay's and Stars Entertainment's Sleepaway Camp DVD box set. Then in 2012, the film was completed using archival footage from the first three films and released on DVD and Amazon Video On Demand. The fifth film, Return to Sleepaway Camp, was completed in 2003 by Robert Hiltzik, back to the director of the original 1983 film, after he recovered the rights to the franchise. However, the film struggled to have its visual effects completed and wouldn't get released for another five years in 2008. The purportedly final film in the Sleepaway Camp series, titled Sleepaway Camp Reunion, was also announced to be in the works. Creator Robert Hiltzik has stated that he would make the film if his budget was met. However, Hiltzik and Return to Sleepaway Camp producer Jeff Hayes later announced themselves as having started to work on a reboot that would retain the key characters and elements of the original film with additional storyline elements and a dose of modernizing. But as of summer 2014, Hiltzik was reportedly still tweaking the script and no further progress had been made. In addition, Michael Simpson, the director of Sleepaway Camp 2, Unhappy Campers, and Sleepaway Camp 3, Teenage Wasteland, wrote a script for a further film called Sleepaway Camp Berserk, 
but that film has yet to move forward as well. On top of all that, although it wasn't technically a sequel, Karen Fields did reprise her role as Judy from Sleepaway Camp in the 2014 short film titled simply Judy. The Jeff Hayes-directed film was included in the Director's Edition Blu-ray release of the original Sleepaway Camp. Wow. So that is a lot of stories told (laughs) by a lot of different people, all with different visions. Therefore, like most franchises, the story tends to get pretty convoluted over time and across several films. So keep in mind, in this episode, we are only talking about theories and character actions based solely on this original movie here. So, you know, any theory that we can bring up, I'm sure there's going to be something in a future movie that's going to discount everything we said. (laughs) But right now, all we're talking about is this movie. As for home video, Anchor Bay Entertainment released Sleepaway Camp on DVD on August 8th, 2000. Anchor Bay then reissued this disc as part of a four-disc set titled The Sleepaway Camp Survival Kit on August 20th, 2002, which also contained the film's two sequels, as well as a bonus disc featuring footage from the unfinished third sequel. This box set, which had a medical red cross featured predominantly on the front cover, was discontinued in late 2002 after the Red Cross filed a complaint against Anchor Bay, which subsequently redesigned the box art to remove the cross logo. So if you have one of those copies that still has that cross on it, please send that immediately to 12665 Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, (laughs) 73157. It might be a collector's edition. I'm just saying. (laughs) Actually, I I looked it up and either version, if you get the one with the cross or the one without, looks like it's going to range anywhere from about 80 bucks to 135. That's a pretty penny. That's a pretty penny. It's a pretty penny. Well, in 2005, the Canadian-based Legacy Entertainment released a region-free budget DVD of the film. However, unlike the original release, this release contains numerous edits to the film to either shorten violence or certain moments of dialogue. Finally, Screen Factory released the film in a collector's edition Blu-ray set on May 27, 2014. This release contains a 2K scan of the original camera negative and has also restored the film to its original uncut version. This is the version that I watched, and the restoration is actually really good. Mm -hmm. So much so that because the film is so much clearer now, it's led to a new fan theory as to who the killer really was. It was a question to me the whole time. (laughs) It, It is. It can be, you know, it's meant to be a mystery. So, of course, it's supposed to be a whodunit, but it seems to be, like, pretty obvious But then as things go on, you're like, well, wait a minute. Now I'm not sure. Yeah. And then we do have our reveal at the end. And supposedly all has been answered. But has it really? No, because I left with many questions. (laughs) Many questions. (laughs) And we need to talk about all of them. Let's do it. All right. Let's get to it. But first, you got a synopsis for us? Yes, and this synopsis is very short, uh, but it's probably one of my favorites. Uh, It says, Bunks and the showers are a mad stabber's beat at a summer camp strictly for teens. 
And there's nothing I love more what? than a mad stabber's beat. That is the most ambiguous synopsis I've ever heard in my life. Mm-hmm. I love it. I love a mad stabber's beat. Okay. Well, that tells us nothing. Basically, all you need to know, it's a summer camp and there's going to be some murders. Yeah. I feel like the synopsis should have just been like, people are at a camp and they get murdered. And some people don't live. <laughs> <laughs> and some people don't go home. <laughs> Well, let's find out which someones those are. <laughs> so our movie starts off with a dedication. It simply says, in fond memory of mom, a doer. So director Robert Hiltzik dedicated the movie to his mother, who died before production began. The financial inheritance from her death provided the bulk of the movie's funding. Uh, also, this movie appears to be produced by the American Eagle Film Corp, which I guess is long before they made overpriced clothing for guys named Chad. Thank goodness. We got to eke out the goodness where we can. I like this better. <laughs> we then see some shots of our summer camp, Camp Arawak, although uh, it's far from summer. The leaves are very noticeably already in their autumnal display. These shots of an abandoned camp go on for the entire duration of the opening credits and are accompanied by one of the loudest scores in any horror film. <laughs> it really wants you to know where you are at all times. Stay alert. Do not let your guard down at this camp. Well, I mean, instead of the traditional scent sound of most slasher films in the 80s, Hiltzik opted to go with a fully orchestrated score and I, I guess he wanted everyone three theaters over to experience this decision. <laughs> it is so loud. And it's not that there's a problem with the score. It's beautifully done. It's just so intense in moments that it should not be this intense. <laughs> it's like I feel like I keep looking at these scenes showing this camp going, are there dead bodies hidden that I'm supposed to see? What am I missing? It makes it much more intense than just showing me scenes of this camp yeah yeah the music is definitely a choice here like i said the score is fine it's just out of place and doesn't fit the film it belongs more uh in like a sophisticated thriller like a psycho than a cheesy teen slasher mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah for sure well during the opening credits uh we see that actor jonathan tierston's name has been spelled incorrectly uh it's spelled as t-i-e-r-s-t-o-n and it actually should be S-T-E-N, which sucks. Can you imagine being in this movie? You're really excited about it. Go show your friends. You're like, oh, they fucking spelled my name wrong. <laughs> I would be pretty pissed. <laughs> uh, apparently they got it right in the end credits. It's just in the opening. Well, at least half of him gets credit. <laughs> we also learned from the excessively long opening that the camp has been shut down and that what we are about to see in the film are the events leading up to that closure. Actually, we, we don't learn that right away from the opening at all. You kind of figure that out later on. Uh, but it's implied. You're just really not sure what's going on at first because it's just a lot of different shots of this empty camp with loud orchestral music playing. And then this weird audio effect that I guess is supposed to be the echoes of fun summer moments that have happened back when the camp was open. But it just sounds like they accidentally left an open mic somewhere while they were recording the score and it picked up people doing random things in the studio. It's like, who are these people talking? Where are these people? 
Well, once our credits finally end, we then cut to a lake scene that takes place several years earlier than the shots of the camp, even though it doesn't actually explain that. They just assume we'll get it and get it all sussed out. Also, it appears this is a Muppet Babies version of the Jersey Shore. (laughs) I know this because we see two young kids, Peter and Angela, sitting on a sailboat with their father, John, and the kids are arguing with the most adorable Jersey accent. (laughs) I did not, you liar. <laughs> you liar. <laughs> it's so cute. Uh, and the boy who utters these words is young actor Maximo Gianfranco Sorrentino, who not only has the most amazing Italian name ever, <laughs> he also happens to be the older brother of Mike the Situation Sorrentino. Oh, wow. That's very interesting. <laughs> Yeah, he's actually shown up on the show several times. Uh, he does have some other creepy credits, including Blood Reservoir, Caesar and Otto's Paranormal Halloween, The House That Wet Blood, and The Dark Side. And of course, all of those, except for The Dark Side, also starred Felissa Rose. Felissa Alert! <laughs> Felissa Alert! We next see a young lifeguard driving a boat, pulling a young girl water skiing, who just wants to be done. Uh, I <laughs> she's like not having a good time she's at all. Like, she's like, can we stop now? <laughs> but but the kids up in the boat just ignore her and say, "You're doing great. It's fine." It's like has she been pulled around for six hours? She's like, <laughs> they just like won't let her come in. I can't feel my legs anymore. <laughs> Hang in there. I'm. I really feel I'm taking on permanent spinal damage. <laughs> can we? I just. I want to let go. <laughs> Wait, I'm actually so tired. <laughs> We've been, we've been doing circles for three hours. <laughs> well, meanwhile, back on the sailboat, Peter and Angela decide to play a joke on Dad. But all that roughhousing just gets the boat flipped over and they all end up in the lake. Darn kids. Oh, those pranksters. I almost called them crusty kids. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, not wrong. it's not wrong. They probably have peanut butter and jelly all over their faces. <laughs> Uh, Well, back on the boat with the water skier, the boat's passenger, another teenage girl, wants to take a turn driving. The lifeguard is hesitant at first, but it's much more important to impress a pretty girl than it is to keep people safe. So he lets her take over. I still love, like, throughout this whole scene that the girl's just still skiing in the back. These people are like, (laughs) we have a crash. We have, like, the lifeguard and the other girl that's, like, trying to drive and argue. She's like, please let me. And the girl in the back is like, please let me. Please let me actually come back in. Please. I also like horseback riding. I'd like to get off the lake now. (laughs) Well, back to John and the kids in the water. Another man, Lenny, calls to them and tells them it's time to go. But before they can get out, we see the water ski boat is heading in their direction. We then see the girl that's being pulled by the boat, the actual water skier. She starts screaming at the kids in the boat, telling them to turn the boat. She can see the danger that's coming. They're about to crash into the sailboat with, you know, the dad and the kids in the water. But the people in the boat are like, what's she saying? I don't know. I can't hear her. Must not be important. La, la, la. Then we cut back to John and the kids who now see the boat coming. And then the kids in the boat finally react, and the lifeguards all turn the wheel. And the girl's like, wheel, turn? How'd the boat work? And the water skiing girl's screaming, turn the wheel! Even though she could let go of the rope at any time. 
She's freaking out, screaming, knowing that this wreck is coming. Just let go. <laughs> Just let go. And you don't have to be involved. <laughs> This whole scene is like just a bunch of chaos that feels like just a split second decision would have changed course of the whole thing. Well, it's like that classic you see like a steamroller coming and someone screaming going, no, no, but they have five years to get out of the way. That's what this was. You have the entire lake to turn. But it's, you know, you just keep screaming about turning the boat and nothing is happening. What do I do? What do I do? No, really, I've never been on a boat before. I've got to be honest. I've never done this. <laughs> it takes forever. Like, I made a sandwich and put together a piece of Ikea furniture in the time it took for the boat to hit them. <laughs> totally could have been avoided. Uh, but then we wouldn't have a movie. Uh, I also like Lenny's reaction here, the man on shore, when the boat hits and you know, tragedy happened. Mm-hmm. He just goes, John. <laughs> a child. A child. Well, that's it. If nothing else. He doesn't run over. It's just, John. <laughs> <laughs> well, then we just watch the poor water skier just absolutely freak out for the next 30 seconds. I mean, I get it. It's tragic. But this girl is just, she is not going to be the same no. after today. No, she, her life has changed. It is. I mean... PTSD. Oh my gosh. Books for sure. I don't know if she will leave the house. (laughs) I don't blame her, though, to be honest. I don't want to leave my house and I haven't even hit anybody with the ski. So I can imagine doing that would definitely make you want to stay home. Plus, imagine just realizing afterwards you could have just fucking let go (laughs) and avoided that month. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we next cut to eight years later and we learn that Robert and Peter were killed in the boating accident and young Angela survived and was sent to live with her aunt Martha and cousin Ricky and they are getting ready to head off to summer camp. Fun times to be had. So much fun to look forward to. Um, so we should take a moment to talk about aunt Martha here. Aunt Martha is a kook. <sighs> She is played by actress Desiree Gould, who does have a few other creepy credits, including Under Surveillance and Tales of Poe, both of which also starred Felissa Rose. Felissa alert! Uh, so Desiree recently passed away in May of this year. She certainly did leave her mark with one of the most bizarre yet memorable characters in horror history. So... Bless you, Desiree, and thank you for your contribution to the wonders of horror. She really is quite amazing uh, in this performance. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's brought up a lot when people talk about this movie, and for good reason. It's pretty strange. One of the best comparisons I've heard is that she's very much like little Edie Beale from Grey Gardens. Uh, So just think of a very eccentric woman who's constantly hosting a morning show with herself for an audience (laughs) consisting of herself. Uh, She'll say things like, children, you're going to miss the bus, and then turn to absolutely no one and say, goodness, no, that wouldn't do at all. Who are you talking to? She also reminds me a little of Amanda Plummer in So I Married an Axe Murderer. Yeah. She played the sister, if anyone remembers that movie, who was also a little off. So (laughs) just a a crazy little kook. But, I mean, it's one of the things that makes this movie great, though. Mm -hmm. It's just that weird kookiness that 
in any other movie or situation would not work. But yet here, it's perfectly fine and acceptable. Yeah. And I think that's what's fun about this movie is like the movie, the tone, everything overall is is meant to be very fun and and relaxed and not supposed to be taken seriously. But you can tell that the actors in it took it seriously and mm-hmm. they all played their roles really well. And I think that's what makes the movie garner the crowd that it does now because it's withstood that test of time because the actors in it did their role so well. This was a passion project for them. Exactly. And they are still passionate about it to this day, and they should be. I mean, was it low budget? Absolutely. Are there plot holes from hell? Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) But it doesn't mean that they didn't put together one hell of an entertaining movie. Mm -hmm. So next we see Ricky and Angela come downstairs. Martha has packed them a bunch of snacks for the bus ride to camp. Wasn't that nice of me? Hmm... (laughs) (laughs) it's a direct quote actually also we finally see our newest creepy credits reigning champion felissa rose who was only 13 at the time of filming yeah she looks adorable like and especially because i had actually seen her as an adult before i saw her in this movie so it was definitely one of those juxtapositions where i was like oh my god she is a baby in this movie but yet somehow looks exactly the same yes (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Well, when casting for the role of Angela, Hiltzik had all the actresses stare wide-eyed and straight ahead while pretending to eat a candy bar. Uh, We'll actually see that actual scene play out later on in the film. Felissa, of course, won that staring contest and got paid a whopping $5,000 for her on-screen debut. We also get to meet Ricky, the cousin, played by Jonathan Tiersten, S-T-E-N. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, he's got some other creepy credits as well, including The Perfect House, Blood Reservoir, Plan 9, Terror Tales, The House That Wet Blood, Lake of Shadows, Toilet Zombie Baby Strikes Back. Oh, I... I That's a, a must-see. Yeah, I was going to say, no, actually, we need a pause here, because <laughs> uh, I have to go see that immediately. <laughs> Uh, Time's Up and Last American Horror Show Volume 2. And of course, all of those have been Felissa Rose films, except for Plan 9, Toilet Zombie Baby, and Last American Horror Show Volume 2. However, she was in Last American Horror Show Volume 1. Nice. She's making her way in there. She's everywhere. Hardest working woman in horror. (laughs) Another fun fact about Jonathan is that he was given the role of Ricky after another unusual audition in which Hilsick just asked Jonathan to curse him out. Jonathan obliged. Hilsick, I guess, liked the way he said cocksuckers and he got the job, I guess. Well, gotta do what you gotta do. (laughs) I really wish I could do all my auditions, interviews, everything with just... Cussing a person out. I usually do mine, which is why I don't get interviewed that often. (laughs) Well, Aunt Martha uh, tied a string around her finger to remind herself to give the kids a copy of their physical to take a camp. Wasn't that nice of me? Hmm? (laughs) Disturbingly, she is a doctor. That's... That's probably one of the most terrifying things about this movie. Yeah, that's pretty problematic. It is. <laughs> we should uh, get her out of there. <laughs> uh, she filled out their physicals herself, but if anyone asks, they're not to tell anyone how they got them. Even though they know she's a doctor, 
Why would there be a problem with her examining her own children? But, you know, whatever. Well, next we see all the kids arriving at Camp Arawak to fill the people needed for these shots. Many of the extras are family members of Hill Six and Felissa Roses. Oh, nice. Uh, She had a lot of relatives in the area willing to come down and help. It also appears that Hilsick didn't fuck around with multiple takes because (laughs) as all the kids are getting off the buses and running aimlessly around, (laughs) since the two people in charge keep yelling at them to move faster, but aren't actually telling anyone where to go, one of the... (laughs) (laughs) Just move! Just fucking move! One of the kids takes a nosedive, crashing into the one of the counselors, yelling at everyone to move faster. He even drops his bag and has to, like, scramble and go back to get it. But God forbid we try and do a second take of that shot now. <laughs> we got it. Nailed it. <laughs> but now this poor kid will forever be known as the dipshit who fell down the hill in sleepaway camp. But also, I feel like that's realistic. There's always that one kid when he arrived to camp that's oh, just, yeah. like, too fucking amped to be there. <laughs> but they're all amped. Why are they all, it, it, like the first few shots, the first day everyone's there, everyone is running everywhere. Yeah. It's like everything had to be done so quickly. Which I, I've i been to like it, camps and it wasn't like that. Like we had to get out of the bus yes. and like single file lines. Oh my and, God. Meet up so you can get your your cabin assignments. Yeah. And, oh yeah, yeah. Exactly. Meet your counselor. There was no run as fast as you fucking can and figure <laughs> it out, kiddo. <laughs> Find a cabin and sleep there. In this scene, we also get our first look at the kitchen staff, including the head chef, Artie, who also happens to be a bona fide sexual predator and all around piece of shit. Yeah, not a great guy. He refers to all the underage girls as fresh chicken and baldies. It's the worst. Gross. Yeah. I'm just going to go ahead and spoil that he's the first one to die. We aren't there yet in the story, but he's a gross human being, and we all need to take solace in the fact that we know he's going to die. Yeah. Or at the very least, be seriously injured enough to cause him long-term, well-deserved karmic suffering. Yeah. Well, another member of the kitchen staff, Ben, tells Artie that they're too young for him, to which Artie says there's no such thing as too young and that Ben is just too old. Gross. However, if you thought that Ben looked and sounded a tad bit familiar, that's because he's played by actor Robert Earl Jones, who is the father of James Earl Jones, better known as the voice of Darth Vader, or, if you're not into sci-fi, the voice of the original Mufasa in The Lion King. I'm unfamiliar with both of those. (laughs) Liar! (laughs) Or as Peter would say, you liar! (laughs) Robert also had a decent career, appearing in some amazing films, including The Sting, Trading Places, The Cotton Club, and Witness. But his only other creepy credit is Maniac Cop 2. Oh, nice. Well, next we see Ricky reunite with his friend Paul from his previous years at Camp Arawak. Ricky introduces Paul to Angela, but then has to apologize and explain that Angela is really shy when she doesn't respond. After all, this is her first time away from home and all. And here's the first bit of weirdness. Well, not the first. This whole movie is fucking weird. But (laughs) (laughs) if Angela has been living with Aunt Martha and Ricky for the past eight years, why has Ricky been going to summer camp every year, but not Angela? Hmm. Hmm. Suspicious. Very weird. 
Well, as Paul leaves, he tells Ricky, wait till you get a load of Judy this year, which I guess she got arthritis really bad over the past year because Paul holds his hands in front of him about chest height like he's holding two giant melons and his hands are all cramped. (laughs) Poor Judy, such a debilitating disease at such a young age. (laughs) Ricky drops Angela off at her cabin and then has an encounter with Judy. Turns out Ricky is old news since girls mature faster than boys and Judy has moved on. So apparently actress Jane Krasowski was originally cast as Judy, but she supposedly dropped the role since she learned of the character's death and found that it was a little too grisly. It is pretty grisly. It, it is. Again, everything's off screen, but yeah, it, um, it's definitely implied what happens <laughs> and it's not pleasant. So back in the girls' cabin, we meet Meg. That's M-E-G Meg, for those of you who don't know how to fucking spell Meg. Why does she feel the need to spell it? (laughs) And like, I mean, I'm sure there's variations, but is there enough that we need that clarification? I I don't know. I suppose if her name was Persephone, yeah, (laughs) we might need help with that one, but I think we're good on Meg. It's three fucking letters. (laughs) She's like, my name's Onomatopoeia, but you can call me Meg. That's M-E-G, Meg, you idiot. Well, the whole movie, I just kept hearing Peter Griffin. Shut up, Meg. (laughs) Also, it's hard to tell sometimes uh, just who is a kid at camp and who's supposed to be in charge. Yeah. Uh, but hard spelling Meg here is one of the counselors and a pretty shitty one at that. In fact, we're soon going to learn that this is probably one of the worst camps you could ever send your child to with or without the impending murders that are, are to come. There's just <laughs> so much terribleness going on here. Yeah. <laughs> I'm surprised any child makes it through the summer alive. Yeah. The authority here is, uh, Null and void. They're they're not there. (laughs) Non-existent. Uh, So Meg is played by actress Catherine Cammie. I believe I'm pronouncing that correctly. She has a couple other creepy credits, including Silent Madness and The Occupants, neither of which starred Felissa Rose. But Silent Madness did also star Paul D'Angelo, who does play Ronnie in this movie, who we'll meet in a bit. So... They do all seem to kind of move around in the same little horror circle. And Mm -hmm. I I love that. Yeah, I do too. Like you said, I think that really just speaks so much to this movie and the environment that it fostered for them to really kind of like bloom these relationships and move forward and to be able to work in, in other movies and there not be, you know, that sense of like competition or anything like that. Just seems like they're all, there's a bunch of camaraderie there. Mm hmm. We see poor, shy Angela just sitting on her bunk staring at everyone else. So Judy and M.E.G. Meg have to make fun of her because that's what you do as a camp counselor (laughs) is put your young wards uh, in horrible, uncomfortable situations. Well, next we cut to the mess hall where everyone is eating. Another fun bit of info here. If you were ever curious what fashion really looked like in the mid-80s, this movie is actually a good indicator. Most of the actors provided their own clothing as their wardrobe for the film. So what they're wearing is really how kids would have dressed at the time. 
not just some costume designer's idea of how kids dressed. And I, I gotta say, it's it's pretty accurate. I mean, there's nothing fancy here. It's just this this is pretty much what the kids look like. Yeah, I love it. I think it keeps it more authentic too, just to that camp vibe. Because I know a lot of camp movies will put kids in like matching shirts and stuff like that. And yeah, I think that happens, but it's just not realistic. I feel like when you go to camp, you're there to like play around and everything like that. So you just bring like your summer rough and tumble clothes. And that's exactly what this looks like. It's just the clothes they brought from home that they knew could get dirty and they could play around in and have fun in. And I think it keeps it authentic. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we did have the day when everyone arrived where everyone is wearing their matching little shirt. But then, but then you know, beyond that, everyone just wears their regular clothes that they brought. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, yeah, I think it's all pretty, pretty accurate. I did have some problems with, you know, when they would do these socials in the evening, some of the guys would be like in really nice khakis and <laughs> it seemed like I don't know if if people would have really dressed like that at a summer camp. <laughs> it seems a little too fancy. This ain't no fancy camp. This ain't no fancy camp by far. Uh, well, then they start doing this weird thing where these chants are being done across the mess hall. You hear one group and it's like multiple people at the same time. And they're like, quiet, please. Dedicated to bunk nine. Thanks for nothing. And then you hear another table go, quiet, please, dedicated to bunk 19. You've got to dribble before you shoot. What <laughs> in the goofy fuck is this? I'm sure this is some camp thing that was specific, and that's some funny thing that they did to rib on other cabins. You know, mm-hmm. you, you always had the, have the best cabin, and you made fun of other cabins. But seeing as how none of the rest of us went to this camp, we have no idea what the hell is going on. Yeah. And it's never explained. I like it. I, I like- do too. I think it's great. But, you know, what the fuck is it? Just tell me what it is. I'm down. I'll tell someone to shut up. I love it. Quiet, please. <laughs> dedicated to bunk 82. Quiet, please. Dedicated to everybody. Go suck a nut. <laughs> Next we see Meg is starting more shit for Angela again because Angela doesn't want to eat. Shut up, Meg. (laughs) So Meg has brought over Ronnie, who I guess is the head counselor guy, kind of. Uh, Ronnie is a very muscly dude who wears teeny tiny little shorts. Yeah, the tiniest shorts. I mean, they're they're shorter than the girl shorts. I don't know how we didn't get a dick slip. (laughs) These, they're, it's... They're like little undies. It's a step above underwear. Yeah. Barely a step above underwear. And it's like, that's his favorite thing to wear the whole time. Yeah, that that's his go-to look. Uh, but at least he's nice to Angela. He seems to be a good do- good guy. He's yeah. just fucking oblivious to everything. Well, he suggests <laughs> they go back into the kitchen and see if they can't find something for Angela to eat. So Ronnie here is played by that Paul D'Angelo that I mentioned earlier. Uh, his creepy credits include that silent madness that also had Meg in it. He was also in Return to Sleepaway Camp, the sequel that was eventually done by the original director who did this one. Uh, He was also in Ghoulish. And of course, these are both also Felissa Rose movies. Felissa alert. (laughs) So Ronnie takes Angela back to the kitchen and introduces her to, you guessed it, Artie the Pedophile Chef. 
and fucking leaves her there. Yeah, I uh, this scene makes me so mad because you can tell he's he really thinks he's doing something nice. Like he's mm-hmm. like, here, you know, I want you to be able to grab something to eat, and I know it's overwhelming out there. But then, yeah, you have Skeevy McSkeevster here who just immediately. Just, he comes out drinking a beer, yeah. and Ronnie has to tell him, "Hey, you know, maybe we not do that in front of the campers." Mm-hmm. You, that's it. That's that's. <laughs> you, we're going to find out that no one has to be accountable for any of their actions here at this camp. It's yeah. frustrating as hell. Yeah. <laughs> well, back out in the mess hall, Ricky comes around looking for Angela, and Meg tells him that Ronnie took her back to the kitchen. Meg wants to know why Angela's so quiet and weird, to which Ricky gets all defensive and tells her to leave Angela alone. That is actually my favorite part of this movie is how protective Ricky is over Angela. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like, no matter how much the others uh, might make fun of him for Angela's behavior, he never backs down and always defends her. Yeah, I agree. I do. I like that she has at least someone in her corner this whole time. Well, back in the walk-in, Artie is being his sleazy self, making the moves on Angela, and begins unbuckling his pants when Ricky comes in and yells, What are you doing? Artie immediately grabs Ricky, slams him into the shelves, and threatens him not to tell anyone. Ricky agrees, and he and Angela run out together. So, during the filming of this scene, they did actually do several takes Uh, And Owen Hughes, the actor who plays Artie, had to repeatedly slam Jonathan Tierston against the shelves. And by the time they were done, Jonathan had lines on his back because they had to do it so many times. Oh, no. Well, next we see Artie and Ben in the kitchen preparing corn in the largest pot you've ever seen in your life. I'm not exaggerating when I say this pot is four feet tall. Yeah, it's it's giant. There's going to be enough corn for everyone to take home um and share with their family i mean i can't imagine that's a real pot i mean i know it takes a lot to feed so many people at once but this pot is absurd it would take four hours just to get the freaking water to boil yeah like and you can't access it without a stool and i feel like that's beyond unsafe that's problem number one (laughs) and uh it's gonna come into play uh, so Ben leaves while Artie stays behind to cook the rest of the corn. We see someone else sneak into the kitchen and approach Artie, but it's all through their point of view, so we can't see who it is. Artie is standing on a chair so he can reach the top of his stupidly tall pot. Whoever has snuck into the kitchen then reaches out and pushes the chair Artie is standing on. This freaks him out, and he's all, You better stop fucking around, kid! Seriously, you better stop or I'm going to kick your ass! Even though he could clearly just get down. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's not like... They're trying to make it seem like he's in some precarious situation, but really just, you know, stand back up and step down. It's not that <laughs> difficult. Uh, but I guess it's supposed to build some sort of suspense. Needless to say, Artie doesn't get down, and those mysterious hands just end up pushing Artie again, causing him to come tumbling down, dumping the ridiculously large pot full of boiling water all over Artie, burning his pedophile ass. It's actually very well done practical effect. It is. It's really well done. I know that my first walk through, my first walk through, my first watch through of the... uh 
movie. I was I was pretty impressed by it just because I was not a expecting the skeevy dude to go down so quick. So that was pretty exciting. <laughs> and then B the like you said, the effects were really well done. And it's really I mean, if you can kind of distance yourself from the absurdity that is the giant pot, I, I mean you do find yourself because he plays it off really well and does these horrific screams. Mm-hmm. Uh and yeah, you find yourself ima- just imagining how awful that feels oh yeah and and you know that's uh, all of this is intentional you know his Mm -hmm. character is intentionally made this skeevy and this gross so it is gleeful when he is horribly injured and it's very painful Mm -hmm. you know because actually to pull this stunt off let's get back to this special effect because it really was well done so actor owen hughes is actually standing against what's made to look like the floor so he's not actually laying down when we see this shot of his burning flesh uh and then behind his head there's these tubes that are running through it attached to the back of his head where air was blown into them to create those pulsating blisters on his face. Mm-hmm. So it, this is probably the goriest shot in a very surprisingly not gory slasher. This is about as intense as it gets, but it's really well done. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. And then, you know, back to the skeeviness of him in the intentionality of this we also get that satisfaction of listening to Artie scream as this scene it goes on for a really unusually long time but you know considering the horribleness of him uh it's wonderful to kind of revel in this karmic uh resolution to his character Mm -hmm, absolutely Well, we then see the paramedics have arrived to take Artie away. The paramedics here were real-life paramedics from a nearby town who were all too happy to help out with the big-time Hollywood production. Uh, It's never confirmed within this movie whether or not Artie survives his injuries, but either way, I think our audience can be satisfied with Artie's end. I was happy with it. I'm gleeful. (laughs) Well, next we see muscly man Ronnie and his tiny shorts discussing the incident with Mel, the camp owner. Mel doesn't want any of the campers or their parents finding out what happened, so the kids won't go home and he doesn't lose money. He then bribes the rest of the kitchen crew to keep their mouths shut with the promise of higher pay. So Mel is played by actor Mike Kellen. He has a few other creepy credits, including the Maltese Bippy, I don't know what that's all about. He, he's he been acting since, I think that movie came out in like the 50s. So That sounds intense. I love the Maltese Bippy. <laughs> Another one called God Told Me To, Just Before Dawn, and a movie listed as Echoes that said Living Nightmare on the poster. Uh, so it's called one of those two things. You can find it other, either. Either one I'm excited about. <laughs> Uh, Also, sadly, this was Mike Kellen's final film. He was actually pretty sick during the filming, but he did his best to conceal it. He would die of lung cancer in August of 1983, just three months before the film's release. Oh, that sucks. Yeah, he, he never got to see it and see it become this great cult classic. Uh, and, you know, Mike's performance, I, I think, is he has a moment Uh, where he's going to discover a body. That's kind of his standout moment. And again, like Desiree Gould playing Aunt Martha, it's kind of an interesting choice. 
in the acting style, but it's endeared him in this film, I think. Mm -hmm. And just another one of those things that just makes this film what it is. Well, next we're in one of the boys' cabins, and oh, how those boys will be boys. Uh, Ricky and some of his bunkmates are playing a prank on another camper and get him to slam his face into Paul's butt. You know, boy things. (laughs) Boy things. Hilarious. And there's nothing homoerotic about it at all. (laughs) Well, next it's time to play baseball, like an entire game of baseball. And we watch 67% of it. <laughs> Why does this scene go on for so long? For almost three minutes straight, we watch these guys, many of whom are in little half shirts. Like, I don't, I was there in the 80s. I don't, I mean, I remember half shirts being a thing, but yeah. not to this degree. <laughs> Again, not homoerotic at all. Uh, needless to say, when this scene finally ends, Ricky and the younger boys manage to beat the older boys. Well, later that night, the kids are hanging out in the rec hall. Camper Mike is pissed because he can't get enough interest from the girls for skinny dipping. I mean, who wants to go skinny dipping with 15 guys and only five girls, right? Right. That doesn't seem unsafe at all. So the guys joke, let's ask Angela. And here's the big moment that won her the part. Angela is sitting off to the side by herself, staring off into the distance, just eating a candy bar. So that's it. That's the moment right there that she did better than anyone else and got her this role. And thank God it did. She nailed it. I've never seen anybody eat a candy bar (laughs) that way. And what kind of a candy bar was it, you ask? Actually, you didn't. I'm sure no one cares, but it's a whatchamacallit. I love whatchamacallit. It's one of my favorites from when I was a kid. I haven't had it in forever. I don't know why I just stopped the whatchamacallit. I will buy you one to eat if you will promise me you will eat it just like Felissa. Staring ahead in silence? Yeah. <laughs> I figured that's how most people prefer me. So, yeah. Yeah, I'll do I it. I say that's how most people enjoy candy bars. <laughs> <laughs> well, a couple of the guys go over and ask Angela if she wants to hang out. But when she doesn't respond to them because she is shy and awkward, they, of course, start to make fun of her. How come you don't talk? Because she's a nutcase. Ain't you Looney Tunes? <laughs> and Angela's the one being made fun of here, right? <laughs> well, about this time, Ricky and his friend Paul come busting into the joint. Ricky wearing the most ridiculous cowboy hat. Why is he wearing that hat? I don't know, because it doesn't definitely doesn't go with the rest of the outfit. And it's never seen again. It's just in this one scene. <laughs> <laughs> For about... 15 seconds because it's about to be knocked off. Well, Doofus 1 and Doofus 2, a.k.a. Kenny and Mike, are still hassling Angela. So Ricky comes over and defends her again. But all this does is start a fight because these are also some of the boys that lost the baseball game to Ricky. But now when I say fight, first of all, that fine-ass cowboy hat gets knocked off Ricky's head and he and another boy immediately drop to the ground and start wrestling. This prompts a bunch of other boys to then come over and also drop to the ground and begin wrestling, but like the same wrestling match. Not a bunch of smaller individual wrestling matches. This is like one big dog pile of wrestling. (laughs) (laughs) Which seems weird to just have a bunch of boys rolling around on the floor together. 
again, not homoerotic at all. <laughs> well, some of the counselors finally break things up, and Ricky, after giving everyone a mini tongue lashing, is taken to the infirmary for a bloody nose. Paul, Ricky's friend, then goes over to check on Angela. He tells her that he and Ricky have been best friends for the past three years and then entertains her with stories of all the mischief he and Ricky have gotten into. Meanwhile, it appears that Judy isn't taking too kindly to Angela receiving Paul's attention as she just watches the conversation intently. Finally, when Paul's cabin leaves for the night, he tells Angela goodnight, to which she actually answers, goodnight. And he loses his shit. He absolutely goes insane. (laughs) And we all kind of do. It's kind of like, she speaks. (laughs) Well, again, Judy has seen all this transpire. And there's actually a really funny thing that happens here film-wise. During this conversation, while we're getting these shots over to Judy watching the pair, there are two guys sitting on either side of Judy having a conversation. But later when the camera comes back to Judy, there are two different guys on either side of her not having a conversation. And they're just kind of uh, sitting there nodding their heads. <laughs> it's like, where did you guys come from? Who are you? It, it, it seems like they had to go back and like, oh, we got to do a pickup shot here. We need more B-roll of you just sitting. But they couldn't remember who was sitting next to her. So like, you guys will do. Just uh, just sit here and pretend like you know what's going on. <laughs> well, next up is that skinny dipping the guys were talking about. A bunch of campers are down by the lake and the guys are still trying to convince the girls to go in. But sorry, boys. Looks like all the girls are too busy braiding each other's hair tonight and won't be able to make it. So instead, about eight guys strip down, bare ass naked, and go jump in the lake. So we are 30 minutes in, and not so much as a side boob has made an appearance in this 80s slasher film. But yet, eight boy butts just bounce down the deck into the water. Again, not homoerotic at all. (laughs) I mean, throughout this whole film, there's very little lady action going on yeah yeah which is crazy because that's what you think of when you think of these 80 slashers mm-hmm. all this sex and this exploitation of the female body and we don't get that here and it's kind of refreshing yeah yeah i can definitely get that it's just a different tone that we're not used to yeah well, next, campers Leslie and Kenny go off on a canoe ride. Remember, Kenny is one of the boys that was just picking on Angela in the rec room. Well, he starts teasing Leslie about all the snakes and snapping turtles in the lake and then proceeds to capsize the canoe. Well, this just pisses Leslie off, so she swims to shore, leaving Kenny out on the lake by himself. He then surfaces under the capsized boat, sticking his head up in the air pocket area trapped underneath. He then starts saying, Leslie, oh, Leslie. Hey, Bobber, hey, Bob. Hey, Bobber, hey, Bob. What the fuck is that? (laughs) Hey, Bobber, hey, Bob. Is that a game? Is it a bird call? (laughs) Plus, you're under a boat. She swam to shore. What what is our what is our goal here? <laughs> it's like he's hey bobber, hey bobbing to no one. <laughs> Never hey bob and hey bob to yourself. You gotta share it. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, believe it or not, he does get a response as another head pops up under the overturned boat. But I don't think that's Leslie, as the person dunks Kenny and holds him underwater. Well, back on shore, we see the rest of the guys from Kenny's bunk are still standing around in either a half shirt or no shirt and skivvies, and they decide to leave Kenny and meet him back at the bunk. Yep, when a friend has been out on the water and is the only one not to return, the best course of action is definitely to leave and not search for him or notify anyone that he's missing. <laughs> he will figure it out. We trust it. <laughs> so there's a couple of things that happen during the scene that are worth mentioning. One, when Kenny tumps the boat over, actor John Dunn actually cut the top of his hand open against a sharp rock on the lake bottom and had to be rushed to the hospital. So that meant that they had to finish shooting the rest of the scene later. However, by the time they were ready to finish shooting the scene, Lisa Buckler, the actress who played the original Leslie we see in the canoe, had gotten mono and was too sick to do the reshoots. This definitely sounds like summer camp. <laughs> it totally sounds like summer camp. So the woman who plays the Leslie that swims back to shore and gets up onto the dock is actually a completely different actress from the one in we, that we saw in the boat. So this actress name is actually Michelle Tatosian, and she ended up getting engaged to writer-director Robert Hiltzik shortly after the film wrapped production. The two would go on to marry, have three children, and are still married to this day. Well, that's fun. Isn't that nice? That's so nice. That's so nice. Slashers bringing people together. Who knew? Mom, Dad, how'd you guys meet? Well, <laughs> let me show ya. <laughs> a little thing called sleepaway camp. <laughs> Ever heard of it? It's fun for the family. And then my mom met my dad. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess you could say, my life is pretty crazy. <laughs> the best thing about this, though, is the fact that we literally switch the actress in the middle of the scene. Yeah. And we just were like, they'll be fine with it. Somebody will figure it out. No one will notice. <laughs> it's perfectly okay. Well, the next morning, the world's most angry lifeguard comes out and is... He's pissed. He is super pissed. He has to clean up everyone's mess. Because for some reason, all the chairs are in the water. I don't know. It, kids, right? <laughs> uh, shenanigans. Then he sees the canoe that we know is hiding Kenny's body. And he's all like, how? there a canoe in the water what? what the fuck this is ridiculous i'm quitting <laughs> well dude you need to calm the fuck down because you are not gonna like what you find under that boat <laughs> you think that canoe like that's crazy <laughs> wait till you find out what's underneath it wait you gotta clean up the dead guy uh so he doesn't listen and just goes storming over there bitching about picking up this and picking up that he flips the boat and sure enough there's kenny's lifeless body you bastards uh, complete with tiny snake coming out of his mouth. And this is one hell of a fake Kenny. It actually looks amazing. Yeah, it is really good. I had, uh, I, I would be willing to hold this up against any live cast on film. It, it looks incredible. Mm -hmm. Now, does it look like a drowning victim? No. Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> the wounds on him don't make any sense for his manner of death. Uh, there's no bloating or skin discoloration or slippage. But it still looks amazing 
And I bet it played for an incredible shock moment in the theaters in 1983. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Uh, the eyes in particular are really creepy to me mm-hmm, on this mm-hmm. one. Uh, I don't know. But again, it, not that gory. He's got, it looked like, I, I guess maybe the fish were supposed to be nibbling on him. I don't, he has wounds on his neck. Some little, some little fish nibbles. Nibbles. Hey, you know, little and that fish dang water snake. That came right out his nose. But it's still not that gory. No, no, it's definitely a very tame kill, <laughs> especially because, like you said, a lot of these are off screen, so we don't actually see like the gory part. I just just the aftermath. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, next we see emergency services back at the camp taking away Kenny's body. Mel and Ronnie are talking to a local cop who's explaining that they'll have to wait for the medical examiner's report to know what really happened to Kenny. But Mel insists that he drowned, to which the cop says. Could have gone down that way. I'm no expert on the subject. (laughs) He's like, no, I'm telling you, I drowned him myself. (laughs) But I mean, you should at least know more than a fucking camp owner, right? (laughs) I mean, they give you some sort of training at the academy. He's like, I don't know, dude, your guess is as good as mine. I'm just fucking here to pick him up. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, he does have that really fucking sweet mustache, though. That's all we care about. So that's all that matters. Uh, and Ronnie did say he remembered the boy being really good swimmer. Hmm. But yeah, I'm sure the camp owner's right. He just drowned. It's fine. No big deal. Yeah, no problem. Uh, also, yeah. <laughs> Ronnie is wearing a shirt that says Universal Bodybuilding and Weightlifting Team. Or at least that's what it's supposed to say. Bodybuilding is spelled wrong. It has no <laughs> L. So it oh, just bodybuilding. says bodybuilding. <laughs> it's my bodybuilding. I'm going to go out back and do some bye bailing if anybody wants to come. <laughs> I really like it. I like it a lot. <laughs> well, next, the girls are playing volleyball. That is everyone but Angela. She's just sitting on a bench off to the side, as usual. Paul comes over to talk to her after a game of tennis with Ricky, and the two make plans to go see the movie in the rec hall later together. Of course, Judy sees this and wants to know why they have to play volleyball, why Angela gets to talk to the boys all day. So M.E.G. Meg comes over, the counselor of the group, remember the one that should be in charge, and tells Judy that it doesn't really seem fair, does it? She then proceeds to tell Angela that if she's not going to participate in the activities... Then she just has to sit there and do nothing. Not talk to boys. Nothing. Be like, great. Thank you. Sign me the fuck up. I didn't realize that was an option. (laughs) Well, later that night after the movie, Paul walks Angela back to her cabin and kisses her goodnight. However, he doesn't ask her permission to do so. It's not until afterwards that he says, I hope you're not mad that I did that. Angela says she's not mad, but... Also doesn't say it was okay, and then says she has to go. But Paul then asks for another kiss, which is a step in the right direction, but he then just swoops in and steals another one before she can respond. Angela again says she has to go inside. This was obviously a very uncomfortable situation for Angela. And for us. Yeah, it's definitely awkward. It definitely, I feel like, you know, up until this point, I've kind of found myself endeared towards this other character that's uh you know outside of her cousin that's giving her support in Paul. this yeah yeah that's giving her support in this in this camp and everything but yeah this this scene definitely kind of 
tips it another way to where I was a little bit leery of him. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just for the simple fact that she was very, very easily seemed to be uncomfortable. Oh, yeah. It was obvious from the jump that she was very uncomfortable with all of this interaction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, next we get a weird scene with more boy shenanigans. Ricky pulls the old shaving cream in the hand trick on another camper named Mozart. A classic. Classic. Mozart and uh, (laughs) Frank. (laughs) Both classics. Well, this was the same kid that got the uh, butt to the face earlier. Well, Mozart then pulls a knife on Ricky, uh, but this is all broken up when finally a damn counselor comes back and intervenes (laughs) and he confiscates the knife. Uh, He then tells them all to go to bed, including you, lover boy, which he says to Paul, which makes all the boys then go and do another dog pile on top of them. They're like, ooh, you love someone? Love us. (laughs) Do guys just randomly pile on top of each other a lot? (laughs) Because this movie would suggest it's pretty common. Just piling left and right. (laughs) Uh, So basically, this scene is just there to set up this knife. Uh, We see this knife get confiscated and the counselor says he's going to turn it over to Ronnie, who's king of the counselors. Uh, But he just kind of tucks it in to like his clothing or something temporarily yeah like in his uh little closet area yeah his cubby hole but of course it's in front of everyone so everyone just sees exactly where it is <laughs> they're like well, well where'd you where'd you put that <laughs> how'd you make that invisible <laughs> amazing well next everyone is down swimming at the lake except of course for angela who just watches from the sidelines paul comes over to say hello and judy stops by to mock them judy needs to get a life Judy does need to get a life and learn her name. She's always wearing shirts with her name on it. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone has trouble with their names. Meg has to spell it all the time. Judy has to put hers on a shirt. I am in my head. Meg made her that shirt uh, just because (laughs) Meg loves knowing the spelling of people's names. So maybe it doesn't say Judy. It says J-U-D-Y. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Got it. I like it. New twist. Well, Judy then goes to Meg, who then has to head their way. Paul sees the torment in store for them, so he decides to bail and leaves Angela to deal with it herself. You're kind of a dick, Paul. You're really losing favor. (laughs) He's like, they see that Meg is coming. They know it's going to be a pain in the ass. He's like, yeah, I am out of here. Good luck. (laughs) So Meg comes over and is all like, why aren't you going swimming? What's the matter? Don't you swim? Hey, why don't you get in the water? Why aren't you why aren't you swimming? There's no water on you. Why isn't that happening? But when Angela won't answer her, Meg starts freaking the fuck out. She just flies off the handle. Oh my god, why won't you answer me? What's wrong with you? Answer me. And she grabs Angela and starts shaking her violently. Oh god, go swimming. Oh my god. Finally Robbie comes over and stops her. He makes sure Angela is okay and tells Meg he wants to see her in his office after the swim period. But nothing happens. It's, I mean, nothing happens. Well, back at the girls' cabin, Judy says, hey, let's all thank Angela for getting Meg in trouble. Thanks a lot, Angela. Oh my God, Judy. You being a completely innocent bystander and just sitting there quietly. Thanks a lot. (laughs) Thanks a lot. She asks Angela why she never takes showers with the rest of them. Is it because she hasn't reached puberty yet? No, it's because it's private. (laughs) (laughs) 
I, I, the moment I first saw that, I was like, cause I remember that kind of being like, you know, when your first time at camp, you get a little bit self-conscious. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And that's like, but I, I just never remember that being a, a thing that was pushed, you know, like it wasn't like there was never this instance of like, why aren't you showering other people? Like people just showered when they wanted to shower. It was, it was, it was fine. People- yeah. I, I don't remember being at camp and, and that being too much of an issue here. It's definitely used to be brought up as a plot point. For sure. Hmm. Why doesn't Angela go mm-hmm. swimming? Why mm-hmm. doesn't she shower when the other girls do? Is she a mermaid? Can she not get wet? Is she allergic to water? I mean, her father and brother were killed horribly in a boating accident. Perhaps that would make her fear water. <laughs> I mean, there are many logical explanations. Uh, but Meg's Judy, not having it. Yeah. Judy and Meg just feel they have to be horrible. <laughs> you didn't spell out that sentence, so I don't understand it. <laughs> You've been here for three weeks and have not spelled your name once. <laughs> Angela. <laughs> Well, Judy refuses to back down. She keeps hounding her. And finally she says, she's a real carpenter's dream. Flat as a board and needs a screw. (laughs) Wow. So funny. Well, finally, the other counselor, Susie, steps in and tells Judy to shut up. But Judy tells Susie to fuck off. So Susie gives Judy a slap right across the face. Holy shit. Can you imagine if a counselor at a camp slapped a camper i don't care what they said there would be shocking that would there would be some problems <laughs> there would be some problems uh but still at least Susie is making an effort to try and protect angela so we like Susie, but again it's never enough yeah you know these these good people these robbies and Susies keep popping up uh but it's always a little too late well the slapping incident leaves Susie in shock and angela just walks up to her and says I'm going to go see my cousin. I'll be back before dinner. <laughs> this whole crazy intense thing just went down and she's like, uh, I'm out. Honestly, relatable. Same. I don't want to talk. Something loud and aggressive happens. I must remove myself from this situation. That's pretty relatable. Can I get a ride back to my house? <laughs> well, next we see Angela make her way down to Ricky's cabin we can also see the older boys on the roof of another cabin having a balloon fight. Where is the adult supervision? These children should not be on a roof. And you can clearly see fucking camp owner Mel in the background. So he's fully aware this is happening. Mm-hmm. It's ridiculous. Well, one of the balloons gets thrown, smacking Angela square in the chest. Well, Ricky sees this and immediately goes into defense mode. He comes running out and cusses these guys up one side and down the other. You fucking bastards, cocksuckers, pricks, pussies, come down here and fight, you chicken shits. Well, this here, this was Jonathan Tierston's big moment. That was his audition scene. And uh, the reason he won and was the best Ricky. He nailed it. I mean. I've never seen a Ricky more Ricky than that moment. Uh, the word cocksucker, it's a whole new... Uh, we're bringing that back. Oh, for sure. And if you don't do it with a Ricky twist, you can get the fuck out. It's a cocksucker with a Ricky twist. <laughs> <laughs> well, while Ricky's yelling, Paul comes out to comfort Angela. Finally, Mel steps in and actually acts like an adult. He chastises the boys on the roof and tells them all to get down. They do, and Ricky, still cussing a blue streak... Tells Mel that those cocksuckers keep picking on my cousin. 
Well, Mel saw the whole thing go down, and all the guys throwing balloons are being reported to Ronnie, and they'll get no canteen for a week. And the same goes for Ricky on account of his foul mouth. Mel then checks that Angela is okay, and then tells her she better go change before she catches pneumonia, because it's almost time to eat. What? (laughs) (laughs) I listened, I literally rewound this and listened to it like three times, like, this sentence does not make sense to me because it sounds like what he's saying is you better go change before we eat because you're going to catch pneumonia. Uh (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly what that sounds like. All right. This is a horrible camp. (laughs) (laughs) They guarantee pneumonia. I just imagine them like serving their food in the freezer. Like that's where all the kids have to eat. So he's like, you know how dinner is. You have to put on your parka. Go change or you're going to get pneumonia. Hurry it up. Nobody wants pneumonia for dessert, do they? (laughs) You want sniffle cake? Don't think you do. (laughs) I also like about that scene that like after the uh, whole confrontation's gone down and, you know, disciplines have been taken care of and everything that other like mischievous group of kids they just sit there like flipping them off like the whole time and it's such a like a teenage boy thing to do to yeah. think that that's mocking like, him yeah yeah and to think that that flipping off is like the ultimate like <laughs> thing that's gonna like really make them cool because all of them are just sitting like middle fingers flying up the whole and they keep doing it the same mm-hmm. <laughs> kids keep doing it. i just think it's hilarious that that's such a quintessential thing i think that teenagers do to kind of rebel you know they can't cuss quite yet so they'll just flip people off and it's just hilarious well next we see billy go in to take a dump and as he does someone sneaks in and puts a broom handle through the door handle so he can't get out but then we see someone go to the giant open window that's above the toilet billy is using slit the screen with that knife that was confiscated from Mozart earlier and shove a whole fucking bee's hive inside. We hear Billy scream and cry for help, pleading with someone to get the bees off of him. Now, remember that broom handle is through the door handle, so Billy can't get out. Never mind the fact that there's a two-foot-tall gap at the bottom of the stall he could climb under, or he could simply climb over the open top of the stall, or he could even jump out the giant window behind him where the beehive was inserted into the room. But no, he is stung to death as the broom handle breaks, opening the stall door, allowing Billy's dead body to hit the floor as we see his head covered in bees. It's... it's a- so nonsensical but also i do i do fuck with it i like the kind of like intensity of it and how fast of a kill it is and then Mm. they did a pretty good job with the effects i think again well i mean you can't see any there's too many bees yeah no i (laughs) too many bees (laughs) you kind of see a little bit um like on his arm and chest uh and they, they just look like gross like boils and uh, cuts and stuff from the bee sting so it's just it's just gross enough but I do agree I, I kind of wish that maybe we just saw like some stray bees and maybe not the bees on the whole face I wish yeah. we got a little bit more gore there cut down on the bees <laughs> cut down on the bees you know just pull back on your bees a bit and <laughs> <laughs> just do a bee back off that's all we're saying back off the bees all right lighter on the bees you know <laughs> 
Well, next we cut to Mel in the aftermath of Billy's death, and he claims he's now finished. They might as well pack up and shut everything down. Parents are going to start pulling their kids left and right and their money, and the camp will never survive. Well, Ronnie tells Mel to go ahead and finish out the summer. Now that their numbers are dwindling, he'll start consolidating everyone since there's no point in keeping everyone spread out. What? What consolidation? Who? You've lost one pedophile cook and two male campers, and now we have to, like, push all... <laughs> this whole camp's falling apart. I guess we'll <laughs> squeeze everybody into one cabin. We'll be I, safer as one. Were there only ten people at the camp to begin with? <laughs> We also learn that Mel is starting to suspect that Ricky is the killer because everyone knows the murderer is always the one with the most phallus mouth. Fuckers. <laughs> well, next, Angela and Paul are sneaking out together and go down to the lake. Paul moves in for another kiss and Angela pulls a pretty slick trick move on him, effectively knocking him down. It's pretty obvious to everyone but Paul that Angela just isn't that into him. But he persists and literally starts chasing her down. It's played off as this cute little romantic teasing moment, but it really is clear that she is uncomfortable with his advances and it therefore makes us uncomfortable. Paul finally catches Angela and gets her to the ground and kisses her. He then starts to unbutton her shirt, which she puts her hand on his and tells him, no, don't. He says, what? I'm not doing anything. And now we have to hate Paul. Thanks she, a lot, Paul. Yeah, way to go, Paul. You ruined everything. She clearly has said no, and not only are you ignoring that, you're immediately trying to convince her that what she thinks is happening isn't. Well, this sends Angela into a catatonic state because this has become her coping mechanism, which is to completely shut down. She then has a flashback dream thing about a time before the accident when both Angela and Peter were still alive and they walked in on their dad in bed with another man. Remember the guy Lenny at the beginning during the accident that went, John? Turns out he was John's lover. We then see Angela and Peter sitting on a bed together and Peter is pointing at Angela and the bed is spinning around and Angela and Peter keep switching places. I don't know what it is, but there you go. It, it symbolizes the ending of the film, but we don't know that at this point. It's just a thing that's happening. <laughs> uh, we'll circle back to it. So back on the beach, Angela freaks out, snaps out of her dream catatonic state, tells Paul no, and goes running off down the beach. The next day, everyone is playing capture the flag, and Paul takes the opportunity to ask Angela about what happened the night before. He says... I wasn't doing anything that bad, was I? To which Angela answers, I'm sorry, Paul, I just wasn't ready. To which Paul grins and goes, Hey, I understand, as he puts his arm around Angela's shoulders. Angela pushes him off and says, Please don't. To which a totally tone-deaf Paul goes, What's the matter with you? No, Paul, what the fuck is the matter with you? <laughs> what the fuck is up, Paul? <laughs> Read the room, dick. When someone tells you they aren't ready for your physical advances, your reply should not be to touch them. <laughs> I don't know how that was in any way logical. <laughs> well, Angela takes off and Judy swoops in for her sloppy seconds. Seriously, 
She had to be right off screen. How did they not see her there? It's like Angela exit and she just, whoop, she's right there. It's like, hi. It's like, were you not just standing two feet away from them the entire time? How was that not weird? (laughs) Well, Ricky tracks Angela down and tells her that he has a great idea for winning Capture the Flag and he needs her help to pull it off because if they work together, they can't get caught. I want you to remember that line because we're going to talk about it again later. So they go off traipsing through the woods so they can sneak in from around the back. Basically, Ricky's plan was to cheat. And what do you know? They come across Paul and Judy smooching it up. So sleazy. Jesus. They pause for a moment and Judy tells him, see, that wasn't so bad. To which Paul says, nah, I guess not. Wow. That is definitely not the complimentary banter you want from a romantic partner. No, no. We need to get rid of Paul. (laughs) And Judy. I mean, both of these people just need to go. Well, the jig is up and Paul and Judy see that they've been caught. Even Ricky sees what the two have been up to. And once Paul goes running after Angela, tells Judy she's a real scumbag. Later on, back at the lake, Paul approaches Angela and apologizes. He says he doesn't know what happened. She just wouldn't leave me alone. Yep, it was all Judy's fault. I mean, don't get me wrong. Judy's behavior is irreprehensible. But you're just a piece of shit who can't take responsibility for their actions, Paul. And also, how does that feel to not be left alone when you ask to be left alone? Yeah. Yeah. Paul. Jerk. May I interest you in this beehive? (laughs) Well, he begs Angela to take him back. That is, until Judy comes up and tells Angela that Paul called her a prude. And Paul, being the worthless little turd that he is, just says, I gotta go. And literally (laughs) runs away. (laughs) I'd rather not be here. I'm gonna go. Oh, things are not working out in my favor. Bye! Judy then proceeds to taunt Angela more about going into the water. Soon, Emmy G. Meg has joined in the fun and literally picks Angela up and carries her down to the water. All while Angela is screaming, no, please don't put me in the water. Where are the goddamn adults? I was about to say, we definitely need some new uh, camp counselors. Why is this being allowed to happen? I, I am so upset that this Meg person is still employed. (laughs) It is infuriating. Yeah. Well, in the midst of this, we see Mel is talking to Ricky, and when Ricky hears Angela screaming for help, he tries to run off to help her, but Mel stops him and is like, where are you going? Every time she's in trouble, you go running off to help her. Yeah, asshole, when people are in trouble, you help them. What what kind of logic is that? (laughs) Especially children. When someone needs assistance, you go and assist them. What's up with that? (laughs) But Mel is more interested in accusing Ricky of being the murderer and yelling and screaming at him. This gets Ronnie's attention, who comes in and gets Mel to let Ricky go. Uh, And just in time, because Meg and Judy have gotten Angela all the way down to the water's edge and actually throw her in. Angela immediately goes underwater, but the world's angriest lifeguard is there, luckily, and he and Ricky both get there in time to pull her out. All while Meg and Judy are just laughing at this poor girl fucking drowning. Ha ha. The near death of a 13-year-old is fucking hysterical. (laughs) Comedy gold. 
Well, angry lifeguard looks at Meg and says, you're a real peckerhead. You know that, Meg? And we all agree. You are a peckerhead, Meg. <laughs> That's another one. Peckerhead. What happened to that word? Let's bring that back, too. <laughs> Cocksucker, peckerhead. These are all... Why did these fall out of favor? I don't They're know. Fantastic. They're not bad at all. <laughs> well, finally, we see Ricky walk Angela off the dock and back onto the beach as a bunch of little shit kids just start throwing sand at him for no goddamn reason. What is wrong with everyone at this camp? I don't camp? know. This whole camp needs to do a reset. <laughs> just full of the world's worst people. Maybe uh, that consolidations is going to be like just the good kids. Like they've started to notice a pattern and they're like, oh, we've actually got some real shitheads at this camp. <laughs> Let's consolidate the good ones, get them all in one safe cabin, yeah, all the other ones safe. Yes. can hang out with the murderer. <laughs> all the rest of you little shits, good luck. Well, next we see Ronnie holding a staff meeting. It's business as usual, except Eddie, another counselor, is going to be taking his young campers off on an overnight camp in the woods, and Meg has the night off. Really? Not only is she not punished for nearly drowning a camper, but she gets rewarded by getting the night off. So nice. Shut up, Meg. <laughs> we next see Meg make her plans for the night, and that is to hook up with Mel for the evening. Hmm. Okay. Unexpected. Okay. I'm sorry. But there is no way <laughs> that this 18-year-old young lady, no matter how much of a piece of crap person she is, has any interest in this 61-year-old man. Yeah. Gross. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. Well, we then see her head back to the cabin to take a shower to get ready for her gross date with Mel. But when she gets there, there's a line waiting for the shower. So she goes to use one of the showers in the empty cabins next door. Remember, we consolidated. So then why aren't all the other girls in line doing the same thing? I mean, I get it. We, we have to get Meg by herself so she can die. But still, still. illogical. <laughs> so Meg is taking her shower all alone and humming. But it's the same fucking three bars over and over again. Shut up, Meg. Just uh, a little shower tune. <laughs> I am showering. I am showering. I am clean. Cleaning myself. <laughs> Oh, we then see someone has shown up to come a killin', and when Meg backs up to the wooden wall of the shower, she is stabbed repeatedly through the wall. It's pretty cool. It is pretty awesome. <laughs> but again, you don't really see anything. Yeah. You see Meg's reaction of just like, ow, oh, pokey, in my back. <laughs> That's uncomfortable. And then you see the outside wall of the shower and the knife go in and some blood come out. But, you know, you'd never see any of the actual stabbing. And again, here we have young teenage girl in a shower, never see anything below her shoulders. Nope. Not a, not a, not a booby anywhere. Not a boob in sight. <laughs> well, next we see that Eddie guy. Remember that counselor we just learned existed about five minutes ago? Yeah, that guy. We see him taking his young campers out to camp under the stars. But he's chosen the dark of night for their arrival, so he and one of the campers go off to gather some firewood while the remaining little campers all stay behind, alone in the woods, in the dark. <laughs> They'll be fine. <laughs> By the way, these just so happen to be all the little boys that were throwing sand at Angela right after she nearly drowned, so this is probably not going to be a good night for them. No. I'm just saying, people who... Uh, do mean things to Angela don't fare well. We're noticing a pattern. Just a bit. 
Well, back at the main camp, Paul and Angela run into each other outside the rec hall. Angela asks if he knows where Ricky is. Paul says Ricky is lying down because he didn't feel well after dinner. Paul then apologizes for what he did and says that he knows what he did was wrong. He didn't mean what he said about her. He was just pissed off. And this is like the first honest interaction we've had from Paul. Uh, but just then, Judy and her new beau come out, and she makes some snide remark about Paul and Angela making a cute couple, and then they leave. Paul then apologizes again and asks Angela for forgiveness. Angela then tells him to meet her at the waterfront after the social. And damn it, these tiny Jersey accents are just the absolute cutest thing. <laughs> I just love how Felissa says waterfront. <laughs> just meet me at the waterfront after the social. So cute. It is so cute. Well, next, back with Eddie and his campers, two of the campers wake up in the middle of the night and decide that they're too cold and want to go back to the main camp. So he agrees to take them. Just two campers, which means he leaves the other four alone in the woods. They'll be fine. In the dark. They'll figure it out. Did I mention this is the worst camp ever? Nothing to worry about. None of these people should ever be allowed to be around children. <laughs> well, I mean, Ronnie and Susie are okay, but they're so fucking oblivious. No, they're terrible too. All these people are just terrible. <laughs> well, back at the main camp, we see Mel come into the rec hall and ask Susie if she's seen Meg. Susie says Meg has the night off and Mel says, yeah, I know. She was supposed to meet me an hour ago. What? You mean they're open about this relationship and everyone's just fine with it? This can't be good. Gross. I hate it. Meanwhile, back in the girls' cabin, Judy is having a little makeup sesh with this dude. Sorry, I don't remember his name. I think it's Mike. I think that might be right. Uh, and she's giving him shit because his kisses are too wet. But before they can get back to it, they're interrupted by Mel. So the dude has to hide under the bed. So Mel comes in, still on his hunt for Meg, and Judy tells him that the last time she saw her, Meg was heading for the shower next door. So Mel leaves, and the dude pops back up from under the bed, but now he's too nervous about getting caught, so he decides to leave, leaving poor Judy all alone. Well, next, Mel has gone next door and finds Emmy G's dead body and has one of the most ridiculous reactions to a body I've ever seen. It, it goes on for so long. Uh -huh. It is really overly acted, but it's just, again, more of what makes these old slasher films so damn fun. Yeah, exactly. Well, Mel still thinks Ricky is the guy, and he vows to Meg that he will put a stop to him. So back in the girls' cabin, Judy has gotten ready for bed, but for some reason is curling her hair. There's nothing like a good bedtime head of curls. <laughs> oh, and all the lights are off. <laughs> this is all perfectly natural. I always get ready in the dark. Every bit of this would happen. Uh, the door to the cabin opens and we can see a person backlit in the doorway, making it difficult to tell exactly who it is. That is if you saw the original version. Uh, this person then enters the room and Judy says, oh, it's you. What do you want? And the person immediately punches the shit out of Judy. <laughs> Judy falls back on the bed, dropping the curling iron next to her. The person then picks up the curling iron and then sexually assaults Judy with it. 
All of this, of course, is off screen and we only get to see the shadow of Judy's hands writhing in pain as she screams in agony until her death. Well, back out in the woods, Eddie has returned to his little campers. Remember them? The tiny babes in the woods? The tiny campers? That were left alone? (laughs) Yeah, well, they're all dead now. Uh Uh-oh. Way to go, Eddie. Didn't see that coming. Still liking that decision about returning to camp without them? (laughs) Were there any requirements at all for this job? (laughs) Any sort of child care training? Just bring your own clothes, that's all. Basic common sense? Nope. Okay. Well, next we see Ricky arrive at the rec hall, but is stopped by a counselor who tells him he's too late and they're shutting things down for the night. But Ricky begs him to let him in just to get some food because he's been lying down all night because dinner made him so sick. So the counselor lets him in. Ricky grabs some candy bars and comes back out as they're shutting off the lights. We then see him walking back to his cabin and we hear a telephone ringing as he passes Ronnie's little office cabin thing. Mm -hmm, I don't know. mm -hmm. But he's getting the call uh, from Eddie telling him about the campers. But just then Mel comes out of the blue and swoops Ricky around the neck, yanking him backwards. Ricky screams at Mel and demands to be left alone. And Mel says, you mean just like you left Lenny and Billy and Meg? But Ricky insists that he doesn't know what the hell Mel is talking about. And Mel proceeds to just start bitch slapping Ricky and then like gorilla beating on his chest, calling him a liar until Ricky is dead. Mel, realizing he's done something bad, says he's got to get away. So he gets up and starts running and runs right onto the archery range. He then sees someone holding a bow and arrow and says, it can't be you. It can't be. It can't be. And the person shoots Mel right through the neck in a pretty badass effect. Yeah. It's done really well. Uh, If you know it's coming, it's maybe not so great. It seems pretty obvious. But the first time I didn't know it was going to happen and I was impressed. Yeah. I I, I think every time I've seen it, it just, I think I can think back on it and, and do one of those things where... I'm impressed with, again, how well the effect is aged. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it literally does look like this arrow goes right through his neck. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and it had to do with, in the back, there's like a little spring-loaded little arrow that actually pops up the minute they uh, hit the front. You can see there's a prosthetic on his neck. Yeah. And yeah. that's the part that gives it away if you know it's coming. But it, it's timed perfectly well and it, it looks effective. It looks like an arrow goes through the guy's damn neck. Mm-hmm. Well, next we see that cop return that was here earlier. Remember the one that's no expert on the subject? <laughs> well, Ronnie has called him in since the young boys were found dead and has gathered all the counselors together. They all realize that Ricky and Paul haven't returned, so they all head off in pairs to look for them. Meanwhile, down on the beach, Paul and Angela meet up, and Angela suggests they go swimming. When Paul asks, what about our clothes? Angela replies, take them off. To which Paul says, all right. (laughs) She says, hell yeah. Well, next we see the cop and one of the counselors out in the woods searching, and the cop has... The absolute worst fake mustache. <laughs> it really is awful. Ever to be on film. <laughs> so <laughs> it turns out the actor was called back to do these reshoots and had already shaved his mustache for another project. And there wasn't enough time for him to grow one back. So 
we get this smush caterpillar on his upper lip. That's it's, amazing. It's so horrible. Well, the duo end up finding Ricky, who turns out to be not dead. Good news. <laughs> What's <a> twist? <laughs> they then hear a girl screaming and run off to the girl's cabin where someone has just discovered Judy's body. However, the girl says it's Meg. But I think this is a continuity error because where we are on the porch, Meg's body is in the cabin through the door on the right. Mm-hmm. Uh, plus, film-wise, Meg's body has already been discovered by Mel, so there's really no need to have a second reveal of lesser characters also discover her body. Um, <laughs> Just everyone could, ah, <laughs> oh no, it's, it's M.E.G. <laughs> Five minutes later, holy shit, did y'all know Meg was in here? (laughs) By the end of the movie, everybody's like, yes, we know, it's Meg. (laughs) We get it, God. (laughs) Uh, Well, there actually was supposed to be a shot of Judy's dead body, but it was considered, quote, much too grisly by the MPAA and was cut. Ooh, spicy. Mm -hmm. Well, next we see Ronnie and Susie arrive down at the waterfront, still calling for the missing kids. They then see someone off in the distance and see Angela sitting on the beach humming. In fact, she's humming the same song that Meg was humming in the shower, only slower. Ronnie and Susie approach Angela, asking if she's okay. We can see she has Paul laying in her lap, and the both of them are naked. But all of a sudden, the scene switches to a flashback of the day that Angela came home to live with Aunt Martha and Ricky. Aunt Martha has bought Angela so many new clothes and is so happy because she's always wanted a little girl. I mean, she's already had a little boy, so another one simply would not do. A little girl would be so much nicer, don't you think, Angela? What a lovely name, Angela. Why, I think it means angel. In fact, I'm sure of it. I know you're going to like that name, won't you, Peter? Bum, bum, bum! The twist! Angela has really been Peter the entire time. We switch back to present day and we see Angela, who is really Peter, jump up. Paul's head, which was in Peter's lap, rolls onto the ground as we see Peter has killed and decapitated him. Peter is growling and stares wide-eyed, his face frozen, as the camera pulls back to reveal a naked Peter, complete with penis. Angela was really Peter all along and has been forced by Aunt Martha to live as a female. The last lines being, my God, she's a boy, as the screen freezes on Angela slash Peter's horrible countenance as we roll credits. That's it. That is the deed. That is our big twist. She's a boy. I remember being so baffled by this ending the first time I watched it. A, just because it's so jarring. It's it's very like, it's a it's an abrupt ending. Purposefully, uh, yeah, I believe, yeah. yes. And uh, I again just kind of remember sitting there like looking at my iPad after I'd finished it and I let the full credits roll and I was just like, well, what 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 did all this mean (laughs) where where do I get answers to this and I think that's why I was so eager to have you watch it too just because I was excited to hear your thoughts and breakdown of everything just because it's always so much different than what I garner from the movies sometimes 
Well, all right, then. We do have a lot to unpack with this ending here. So best just to to jump into it. So I think the abruptness that you mentioned here is absolutely purposeful. It's quite obvious that the intentions of this film, the horror of it, the thing that was supposed to be so horrifying, is actually this twist ending. The fact that she is a he, which if you think back in these times, we were in this panic of uh, fear of homosexuality and transgender and fear of those things coming in because they were still perceived as these evil things. And to a certain degree, they still are today, but we have luckily made leaps and bound strides in acceptance. So that was what was meant to be the horrifying thing. Mm -hmm. And so when a lot of people talk about this film, uh, they see that as a negative. And and it is, because that that should never be viewed as something that's horrifying. Yeah, yeah. However, if we really examine what is going on here, we see that this is not the story of a transgender's journey. This is the story of someone who is being forced to portray themselves as a gender that they do not identify as, which basically is the journey of a transgender person. Yeah, yeah, that's often very real to life. Exactly. So to me, what this speaks of more is that it speaks to the irreprehensible mental damage that you can do to someone when you force them to be something that they are not. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, this is the extreme. I am certainly not saying that people who are denied the ability to be themselves are all going to become murderers. That is not what I'm saying at all. It's, again, this is an an extreme over-the-top example. But it just goes to show how it is damaging. You are permanently hurting someone this was a young boy peter who suffers a tragedy loses his father and his sister and then is brought home to live with this aunt who is supposed to care for him and you know bring him up comfort him and get him through this tragedy and instead immediately strips him of his identity and without giving him a choice tells them he is now this new person this angela his sister and that he will have to present himself as such for the rest of his life. So that is my take on it. I, I understand that the absolute intent here was to have the fact that it is a boy be shocking. And it is, in a sense, because now we're learning that this character isn't who we thought it was. But they thought that the big shocking part was, oh, this is a transgender person. Yeah. Shocking. When that's not the case at all. It's not a transgender person. The the quite frankly, the real villain here was Aunt Martha. Yeah. Yeah. She's she's created what has happened here. All of this could have been avoided. Every single bit of this could have been avoided if Peter was just allowed to be Peter. Now, mm. he was still going to have some mental damage from having to go through such a horrible tragedy and the loss of his family. Yeah, of course. But beyond that, yes, this is all Aunt Martha. Thanks a lot, Aunt Martha. No way to go, Aunt Martha. 
Now, to to look at this from the perspective of a transgender person and how they feel about it, we certainly can't speak to that fact, uh, nor would we want to try. Uh, However, there are a couple of really fantastic articles that I read uh, written from transgender authors that are really great in uh, kind of delving into their journey and, and how it speaks to them. Uh, So I highly recommend reading those. Yeah, I think, again, that kind of um, just always harkens back to what we talk about with horror, about how you can get so much uh, out of it, you know, depending on on how you are choosing to watch it. And I love that about this movie because it can very easily be watched at face value. Uh, And that's how I was the first time I watched it. I really just I just watched it on a whim. I had no idea what was happening. going to be going on in it or any of the you know themes or anything in it but after watching it and I actually went and listened to some podcasts about the movie and then rewatched it and I I definitely think um that yeah like you said I think it can be taken in a way that is definitely more true to life and can speak more volumes to those that are often uh villainized and and stuff like that in community like the transgender community and that's I think this is a movie that can, uh, like you said, help to maybe speak to somebody in that community that is is struggling, but do it in a way that's that's fun and lighthearted. And um, there's so many articles um, out there about this movie, about both sides of the coin, whatever way you're watching this movie. And I, I like the fact that we can get some genuine voices Um telling their story about how they received this movie because obviously if you're part of that community you're going to receive the movie far differently than somebody that's that's removed um, from that community and so I definitely think that's so fun um, when it comes to movies and and horror like that we have the opportunity to read other people's experiences and how they receive a movie and and what that means to them Uh, and the fact that just a simple horror movie can mean something to somebody like that I think is really cool. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's pretty rare. A a lot of times, especially in these older movies, there are a lot of things that are problematic that uh, are offensive. And so it's not very often that we can look back on some of these movies and turn that around into more of a positive viewing experience. Yeah, a learning lesson type of thing. Yeah, exactly. And I think this is one of those occasions that we can do that. And uh, we can use this movie to embark on deeper conversations, uh, take it as a chance to get educated or simply, you know, embrace it and find a different message uh, that even if it wasn't intended, we can read deeper and uh, find that from the subtext here. And it's one of those that sometimes it takes two or three watchings to to pick that up. Mm -hmm. But I think it's worth that scrutiny. It it really does take that enjoyment of this film to another level. Yeah, absolutely. Well, before we talk more about the ending, I do have a couple more little uh, trivia things here to go through. So at the end, when Angela is sitting and humming, uh, when she's on the beach, if you look beyond her, you can kind of see a, a dock that leads out over the water. And just on the other side of that dock or pier type thing, you can see a person is visible and they look like they're like moving around or changing. That is actually the actor. Um, so th- that final scene, obviously, 
uh, Felissa Rose does not have a penis that I'm aware of. Uh, so that is a male stand-in, and they did a life cast of her face. Uh, so in the faraway shots, when they pull back and you can see the full body, uh, the body double is wearing a mask of uh, Phyllis's face. But in that shot where you can see someone off in the distance, that's actually him changing, getting ready for his shot. Why they put him in view of the camera to do that, I have no idea. But if you go back and look at it, you'll see it's kind of the, they have maybe like a white shirt on something. It's pretty noticeable once you know it's there. Yeah, I was about to say I've never noticed it before. Uh, another thing of interest is Christopher Collette, who played Paul, had a latex version of his head created for that final scene because he had been decapitated. And it turns out someone on set stole that head. And to this day, no one knows where it ended up. Oh, that's weird. <laughs> so someone out there has got Christopher's head. <laughs> what are you doing with it? <laughs> Who's got my head? <laughs> Uh, and last little bit I have here. So Felissa Rose's mother did not want her to be the killer because she was so young. So, or at least didn't want to have any, how do I put this? They didn't want her shown doing yeah, any of the actual killing. The yes. Killer. It, it, obviously with the end and the reveal, they knew what that was, but they didn't want, you know, any actual like stabbing, pushing, whatever. None of that should be Felissa. Uh, so it was contracted that that's how it would be. So Jonathan Tiersten was used as the stand-in hand double for all of Angela's actions during the murder. So when you see the knife stabbing or when you see, uh, you know, our skeezy cook being pushed off the, the chair and burned to death, those were all Jonathan's hands. You know, and his more masculine hands uh, could better throw off the audience uh, since it turns out that Angela is actually Peter. And then it, <laughs> it says that he even donned a wig for the backlit shot in which Angela finds Judy in the dark. So if you remember, there's that scene that I said, if you had seen the cleaned up version, it's quite obvious who is standing in the doorway backlit. Uh, it's very obvious that it is Jonathan. There is no doubt. Mm -hmm. uh, he's even wearing an outfit that we saw him wearing earlier in the day, which this got me to wondering because, you know, I mentioned in the wiki that because of this new version that that came out, this cleaned up version that was taken from the original negative, that shot is more clear now. In the original, it was really more ambiguous who that was standing in the doorway. But now that you can clearly see that that is Jonathan, a lot of people said, well, that's just because of this rule that Felissa's mother had that she didn't want her on scene doing any of the killing. But in that scene, Felissa wouldn't have been doing any of the killing. She literally would have just been standing there. I mean, I understand maybe why they still wanted to use Ricky, maybe to throw people off. But why would they not at least put Ricky in Felissa's outfit. Mm -hmm. Do you understand what I'm saying? So this has led people to believe that possibly there were actually two killers the entire time and Ricky was actually helping Angela with these murders. And upon my second viewing, that actually started to make a lot of sense. 
And I even had to go and look it up because we do not own the DVD version of this, so we didn't have access to the commentary. But I had to go look up if ever Hiltzik had mentioned anything about the fact that you can see that that's Jonathan or anything. And I didn't find that he said anything specifically about that, but I did find that apparently in the commentary, he is quoted as saying something to the effect of, you know, yes, it's revealed that Angela slash Peter was the killer, but that doesn't mean she had to be the only killer. So he didn't come right out and say that, yes, indeed, Ricky was helping, but it's plausible. Mm -hmm. And if you think about it, this last night, you know, when you have Meg die, you have the four kids die, you have Judy die, you have Mel die. That is a lot of people in one night for one little girl or little boy to be doing. So remember when I mentioned earlier, when Ricky has that idea during Capture the Flag and he meets up with Angela and he tells her, if they work together, they can't get caught. And I just thought maybe that was like some little side note saying, hey, we're already working as a team. If we continue to do that, you know, there's a way that we can't get caught. So another thing that I think leads toward this theory is that knife, the knife that was taken from Mozart that the camp counselor just kind of hid in his cubby hole. Angela would have had no idea that that knife was there. Yeah. There's no way. So either Ricky had to tell her about it and either tell her where to get it or bring it to her, or he's the one who started killing people with a knife. Uh, there's a theory that when Billy is killed with the bees, you know, this takes place in a boy's cabin. So it's in broad daylight. So it would have been too obvious if Angela just walked into a boy's cabin to go lock him in there. So it would make more sense if Ricky is actually the one locking him in the bathroom stall. And then he goes and maybe... Angela is waiting outside with this beehive. He takes her the knife, hands that off. She slices it open and then sticks the bees in and then he dies. And now she has the knife. I, I don't know. Just as soon as that knife came into play, I was like, wait a minute. How would she even know that knife was there to get a hold of it? Mm -hmm. So it's just food for thought. It's something interesting to go back and watch and try and figure out could she actually be in all these places. Is there enough time? Because we know that this last night when the majority of these murders take place, remember, supposedly Ricky was just laying down in his bunk because he didn't feel well and just kind of shows up at the end of the night and is like, oh, I've been not feeling well from dinner, but I'm back now. And that's when Mel gets a hold of him. So I don't know. It's an interesting theory, one that I am privy to. <laughs> yeah, that is really interesting. I know that whenever I was watching it, there was, like I said, there was definitely confusion and questions as far as who the killer was. And I think that's because I watched the um, obviously same version that you watched. And there is that scene that to me completely threw me off mm -hmm. and, and the use of his hands. That was one thing that kept throwing me off. Um but then, you know, the whole time it, you're really made to believe that it's Angela. So I was like, well, that's that's got to be who it is. So then when the ending happened, I think I just attributed all, you know, the the more masculine hand looking hands 
to it being actually Peter's hands and right. not the mm-hmm. traditional um, Angela's hands. Right. Which uh, makes sense. Yeah. So that's interesting that there's like some like deeper tones there that people have kind of um, picked up on and theorized about because it definitely makes it more interesting. Yeah. It, it made my second watch through a, a lot more interesting uh, when I heard the theory that because of this, I, I didn't realize that it it was just in this remastered version that you could really see Jonathan better standing in that doorway, and that it was just so much more ambiguous in the original. Which I mean, it's not like it was blurry. I don't know how much more. Ambiguous yeah, it, it seemed pretty obvious that this was a dude in a wig standing there, but still. You know, once I knew that that was a theory, I thought, well, that was pretty interesting. So when I was doing my second watch through to write all my notes and stuff, it started kind of clicking and going, huh, well, wait a minute, (laughs) because I saw the knife thing. It was like, how'd she know where that knife was? (laughs) So, yeah, it's it definitely makes it worth at least a second watch through to go back and see what you pick out. I'd be curious to know if anyone else uh has heard of this theory uh subscribes to this theory has a different theory i don't know let's talk about it in the discussion room yeah i'm excited i i like i said have watched this movie want to talk about this movie so the more people talking about this movie the better that's that's how i feel about it that's how she feels she's not afraid to let you know i'm not afraid to let you know well of course we still have some prompts we want to get to do you got those ready i sure do all right well what did you have for your popcorn spiller uh, so this one was, I think, a first for me because normally my popcorn spiller uh, is is pretty early on in the movie. Mm-hmm. But this one I feel like has to be the ending scene for me. I, like I said, I literally sat there with my mouth wide open <laughs> watching it, the blue hue from my iPad just glowing my face. And so I feel like if, if a scene is able to literally kind of shock me enough to where I'm just sitting there staring then that's enough of like a shocker popcorn spiller moment. And and really, I feel like for me, that's where it hits in this movie. Because the movie's pretty tame for me throughout. Right. And I never find myself like too on the edge of my seat or too, you know, amped up and, mm-hmm. and shocked by anything. So yeah, the ending, uh, and, and I think primarily just uh, Angela's face. Like the whole scene yep. is very jarring, of course. And, it, and I think it's jarring in the aspect of like it's just a very unexpected twist that as the first time viewer I wasn't expecting uh, but I think it's just the fact that it just stops on Angela's mouth open wide face it's just very unsettling and she's growling yeah there's this weird little animal growl yes. thing going on that I do not like yeah yeah it's not uh, a good time yeah I distinctly remember you watching that because you had it on during work sometimes you'll put these what we call kind of fluff movies on Mm -hmm. that you don't have to really think too much about you think at first you think oh this is nothing yeah and and (laughs) and so this is one of those that you had thrown on thinking that it was just you know just another little cheesy film Mm -hmm. and you got to that ending you immediately text me at work (laughs) and we're like i don't know what i just watched yeah but the ending shot is one of the most horrifying things. I even think you sent me a screenshot. I'm pretty sure I did. I think just I... of the face because you were like, why is this happening? <laughs> why is, I was probably at this point like, why is this still happening? Yeah. I felt like the face was on the screen forever. It, I was like, <laughs> It is on screen throughout the entirety of the credits. Mm-hmm. And then once the credit ends, it stays on screen for 10 more seconds. Yeah. 
And that's 10 more seconds I didn't need. And it it, it it it's horrifying. Yeah. Just this look. I cannot describe it. You have to see it for yourself. Yeah. This look on her face is horrifying. Yeah. So that was an easy pick for me as far as my popcorn spiller. What about for you? Well, for me, I had Mel's death. Uh, I honestly did not anticipate the shot through the neck. Yeah. Uh, I thought we would see it you know, off screen, all the deaths and the crazy stuff have been off screen. So I thought, you know, I knew it was coming as soon as I saw the archery thing in the back. I was like, well, he's about to get shot with an Mm -hmm. arrow. So I knew that was coming, but everything had been off screen and then we just get the reaction. So I figure we would see maybe the arrow fly through the air and then it would just cut and it would already be through like his neck or Mm -hmm. wherever. So yeah, I totally was not into, so it, when it just went thump, you're like, oh shit, that was awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Who ended up being your scene stealer? I adore Ricky. Ricky, yeah, I love Ricky. Even if he does turn out to be a partner in murder, I don't care. I just, I think his devotion to his cousin, uh, you know, even if that did make him murder partners, I, I think it's admirable. I thought he was adorable. Yeah, yeah. Plus, he just, to me, he looked like the epitome of what a a young kid in the 80s looked like. Mm-hmm. He looked like so many boys that I went to school with. Yeah. <laughs> that it just, it made me nostalgic for, you know, my, my school years. So, yeah. yeah, I just, I loved Ricky. What about you? Uh, so mine is is Aunt Martha, just yeah. because I wish that we had more of her bizarre acting. Oh, gosh, she's uh, so good. And, and the fact that she really is kind of this underlying evil character, uh, although not overtly, uh, I still, I kind of wished that either A, we just got more of her in general, or we got more of her kind of speaking to more of that evil side. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe there's something more sinister going on or something. Um, and I would just generally like more of her character. So the fact that I was left kind of yearning more for this one character that we get only a few seconds of um, at the beginning and, and at the end, I feel like that really meant that she kind of stole the show for me because I was just really eager to learn more about her and, like I said, just get some of her more bizarre <laughs> phrases and things that she would say. Yeah, yeah, she was she was fantastic. Yeah. All right, so although we didn't have a whole lot of gore in this one, what did you come up with for your gorgasm? Oh, mine's already. I think uh, the grease or the boiling water mm-hmm. burned, whatever it is. Uh, I think partially just because I love the effects, but also it just it's, it's a nice vindication that I, I like to feel when, when people get killed off in movies. <laughs> it was very gratifying. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I love slashers, don't get me wrong. I love the kind of crazy, gratuitous kills that just come one after another in these movies. But I do also like some kind of justice uh, when there can be some found in these kind of crazy movies. Uh, and so, yeah, the moment he was killed off, I was like, well, it's a great looking effect and I hate him. So <laughs> win-win. <laughs> what about for you? Uh, I went with Kenny's life cast, the kid who died in the canoe. Mm, yes, it's that, really good. That damn thing looks so good. I didn't even care if the wounds didn't make sense. Yeah. I, it, I was just appreciating it for its amazingness. Yeah, you can definitely look past those, I think, whenever you're, like you said, just kind of in awe of how good it looks. Yeah, yeah. So who ended up being your memorable mortality for this movie? You know, I originally, you have to stop and think, okay, so what's the one that... I literally look back on this. What's the first thing that pops in my mind? And the first thing that pops in your mind is damn Felissa Rose's face at the end of this movie. And so you want to say, well, then that means that Paul's death, uh, because that's what you remember is just her jumping up at the end. But no, 
you you forget that it's mm-hmm. after she had just murdered Paul and we never even get to see that. You just see his head roll off. Yeah. So for me, the murder that I think about the death, it's Judy's. Yep. That's exactly who I oh, had. <laughs> you never see a damn thing, but just the thought of that. Yep. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's I horrifying. think that was one of the ones that I carried away from the first viewing as well, just because it is um, granted off screen. Still a very shocking uh way to go and so yeah i know and i think again when watching youtube videos i, I want to say that even like she's like signed curling irons or something like that at like cons and oh, stuff yeah. which i just think is amazing and hilarious uh and so yeah i think that's what i like about it is it's so it's such an obscure way to go out and quite a rough way <laughs> it's very memorable mm-hmm. in that capacity yeah uh and and the fact again that we kind of we get to see a little bit of justice against kind of a, a crappy character throughout the movie, I think is is at least nice too. That adds to it <laughs> being a little bit more memorable than the rest. Well, this movie uh, as a whole is certainly memorable. I I'm so glad that we have finally covered it. This is such a fun one. It's a fun one to go back and watch, especially now that I'm on this Ricky could have helped out kick. <laughs> I only scratched the surface going back on my second watch because, you know, I'm I'm having to do all this research and writing these notes and I, I really don't have time <laughs> to sit there and analyze it as much as I'd like to. Uh, so I, I think this for me is definitely going to get a third viewing where I got to go back and see, OK, who had time to be where? So you're definitely saying this one's going in the vault for you? Oh, in the vault for sure. Yeah, yeah. I think same for me. I mean, I knew kind of from the first time I watched it how eager I was to get you to watch it and other people. So I think, again, if a movie can kind of make me excited to persuade other people to watch it, uh, then then yeah, it it should go in my collection for sure. Yeah, I, I quite frankly, in my opinion, I don't think you can have a horror collection and not include sleepaway camp. Yeah. You know, no matter what you think about it, you know, some people are just going to be offended by this movie and they can't get past it. And if it's not your jam, it's not your jam. There's, there's plenty of other stuff out there to entertain you. But for me, this one's, it's a fun one. It's a go-to every time. Yeah. Which I'm excited about. Cause I, I wasn't for sure how you would feel about it, you know, especially after I, I hyped it up, which I tend to do when I get excited about things. So I'm excited to see that it kind of lived up to expectations and that you enjoyed it. Yeah. Anytime I I get to make fun of a movie, but yet still be thoroughly entertained by it, it's the best. Yeah. It's the absolute best. This one, it's low budget. It's obviously low budget, but where it counted, it, it came through. The effects were amazing. Some of the acting is surprisingly amazing for these first-time people. Some of the acting is not surprisingly horrible. And that is just as charming. And I love absolutely every minute of it. <laughs> well, that's going to do it for us. Episode 29 is... In the can. In the can. Thank you so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Dead Zone Drive-In on your favorite listening platform. And if you're looking for a way to support us, we would be so grateful if you would leave a rating and or review. And if you screenshot that review and send it to us, we're going to send you your very own Dead Zone sticker for free. That's no money's honey. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can email us at deadzonedrivein at gmail.com. 
And if you want to reach us by snail mail, our address is P.O. Box 12665, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma 73157. If you want to hang out with us and fellow late night weirdos, check out the show notes for links to our socials and our Facebook group, The Dead Zone Drive-In Discussion Room. Also, if you haven't already, be sure to check out our Letterboxd, linked down in the show notes, where I track all the horror we watch inside and outside of the screening room. Lastly, next week we'll be raising our spirit fingers as we check out the 1988 slasher film Cheerleader Camp. If you want to check out that trailer, don't worry, we've got you. That link is also down in the show notes. And of course, a big thank you to our house band Slime and the Maggot Boob for hitting up that seasonal candle sale while we were out on the road. The Dead Zone just doesn't offer any place for us to stop and pick up any good ones, and they totally restocked us and even splurged on some pumpkin spice goodness for themselves. You deserve it, guys. Thanks. Thank you so much. It smells lovely. And remember, if you're looking for the Dead Zone and want to join us for a weekend screening, if you've listened to this episode in its entirety, you'll have been provided with all the information you need. Don't forget your tickets. Good night, folks, and please buckle up. We'll be waiting for you. Anchor Bay then released... Nope. Anchor Bay... Anchor Bee. Hey, is the Anchor Bee over there? <laughs> you want to go over to Anchor Bee? <laughs> no, I don't like to swim in the bee, alright? <laughs> There's sharks in the bee. <laughs> and now, folks, it's time to say goodnight. We sincerely appreciate your patronage and hope we've succeeded in bringing you an enjoyable evening of entertainment. Please drive home carefully and come back again soon. Good night.